My name is Will Spencer, and you're listening to the Renaissance of Men podcast, a place for extended, in-depth discussions about the rebirth of virtuous masculinity happening around the world today. My guest this week is the author of the new book, I Can't Believe How Easy This Is, How to Conquer Screen Addictions with the Power of Your Subconscious Mind. Please welcome back to the podcast, John David Haskins. This is a time of transformation. As old ways fall, men are called to rise, to heal our lives, grow strong, and transcend our limitations. In tribes around the world, drawing on the best of masculinity from all of time, a new day is beginning. This is the Renaissance of Men. You are the Renaissance. Have you ever considered what a truly Christian approach to science would look like? Now, obviously, I don't mean the Christian Science Church started by Mary Baker Eddy in 1875. That is another subject for another time. I mean, what would the entire field of science look like if it were populated by devout, Bible-believing, sovereign grace Christians. I ask because the sciences as we know them have been populated by atheists, materialists, secularists, and in many cases universalists, or even oneists, as in all is one, for at least the past hundred years. Einstein, Watson and Crick, Tesla, Oppenheimer, Feynman, these men were not Christ followers, not even a little bit. In fact, if you go looking into their private lives, it's often quite shocking to see just how much sexual immorality these supposed geniuses were involved in. All that brain power and still not enough to figure out how to keep a zipper up. Amazing. So now here we are, in this post-technological age, literally defined by massive advances in chemistry, physics, biology, medicine, engineering, astronomy, cosmology, quantum mechanics, and more, accomplished by sinners while Christians either sat on the sidelines or sat in silence about their true beliefs. Now, I and many others are talking about taking dominion in the fields of culture creation, politics, government, and public morality. And hallelujah for that. Those are all vital battlefields and perhaps among the most urgent we face today. But why have I not yet heard about a full court press for the sciences, which will be vital for the Christian nationalist project to succeed long term? Because we can certainly take back America, but once we do, where will we be taking it? I ask because I observe, in both myself and others, a deep suspicion some Christians have about investigating the world outside the confines of what the Bible says. Newsflash! The weak and strong electromagnetic force that are theorized to hold the atom together cannot be found in the pages of Scripture. There's no mention of electrons or photons, no wave-particle dualities, no DNA, no calculus, not even a red blood cell. The countless physical, material realities required for you to be listening to me right now, material science, electricity, computer science and engineering, electromagnetic radiation for Wi-Fi, even the physics of sound waves propagating through your headphones or speakers, not one of them finds scriptural support. And yet they're real. No magic or sorcery. They're based on principles that God used in the architecture of material reality, the architecture of creation itself, which makes them glorious. But it often seems that when you start talking to Christians about exploring and utilizing verifiable aspects of the material world, 
they react as if you're talking about superstition. And to be clear, I include myself in this as well. It's a rather new development in my thinking that I'm not quite sure what to do with. Now look, I don't believe this is inherently a bad thing. To borrow a line from the movie Jurassic Park, where Jeff Goldblum's character famously says, quote, Your scientists were so preoccupied with whether or not they could, they didn't stop to think if they should. Science and technology are not morally neutral. For more, I recommend the books You Are Not a Gadget by Jaron Lanier, and the single best book I read during my entire Stanford education, Toward a More Natural Science by Leon Cass, MD. Both are linked in the show notes. So I think we could use a bit more discussion of the moral dimensions of science and technology, which is why I feel comfortable with my new feelings of caution and prudence. However, what happens when we start crossing the boundary from external, physical, objective, material reality into the dimension of inner reality? In other words, how does all this apply once we start thinking about psychology, the science of the mind? This raises all kinds of very difficult questions that, frankly, I'm not qualified to answer. For example, is there a difference between the mind and the soul, between mental health and spiritual health? What falls into that gap? Does the mind have a purely physical component in the brain? What does it mean that a saved believer and an unsaved pagan, or even a Satanist, have fundamentally different spiritual natures, as different as hearts of stone and flesh, and yet their minds seem to work in similar ways mechanically, let's say. To be clear, I do not know the answers to these questions, and they are complicated by the fact that the pioneers of psychology, Freud, Jung, and Wilhelm Reich, are some of the most disgusting antichrist humans of the past century, and their inheritors, men like James Hillman, might not be so corrupt and even write movingly about the human condition, but their foundations are thus uncertain at best, which makes the entire field radioactive. That is why I ask what a Christian approach to science would look like. Christians have seeded politics, economics, industry, medicine, media, transportation, education, and finally science of all sorts to unbelievers for decades. And when you even suggest that, hey guys, maybe we should think about taking some of these back, little old Christian ladies of both sexes absolutely lose their minds. Have you been on Twitter lately? In the meantime, though, what are we as believers supposed to do? How are we to proceed? How can we make use of the knowledge modernity has provided to improve our lives when our pastors behave as if they're unqualified to lead men and women out of paper bags, let alone into the public square or the academy? I don't rightfully know, but allow me to suggest an answer. How about we do it carefully, holding aloft the light of the gospel like a candle in the dark, questioning ourselves, questioning our methods, not so much that we stop, but not so little that we run incautiously either. I think our intuitions are correct that the penalties for wrong answers can be high, but the rewards for the right answers, achieved the right way and with the right intention for the glory of God, can be even higher. Which brings me to my guest this week. His name is John David Haskins, but you might recognize him better as King David, who appeared on my podcast two years ago. At that time, he was counseling men successfully how to quit porn, and both he and I were at very different stages of our faith journey as well. Today, John has graduated, and now he helps men address screen addictions of all kinds, not just pornography. In his excellent new book, I Can't Believe How Easy This Is, How to Conquer Screen Addictions with the Power of Your Subconscious Mind, is all about how he does that. Now, if you're like most Christians, including me, the inclusion of the phrase subconscious mind probably has all kinds of alarm bells going off, red flags marching down the street, 
and you wondering if you're about to unsubscribe from this podcast forever and throw your phone in the ocean to protect you and your loved ones from heresy. While I fully support you throwing your phone in the ocean and would ask you to toss mine while you're at it, I hope you'll give me just a couple more seconds before you unsubscribe from the podcast. You have a subconscious mind. So do I. The subconscious is where we store our memories. Complex bits of knowledge like how to drive a car, cook a souffle, or do a barbell back squat. And is also where many of our dreams and even our intuitions come from. Have you ever walked into a room or met a person and felt uneasy, like you should leave and can't say why? That might not be the Holy Spirit. In many cases, it's also your subconscious mind alerting you to information your conscious mind isn't picking up on. And for the same reason, our subconscious mind is also key to our response to beauty. If you've ever looked at a painting or sculpture, listened to a symphony or song, or stood in a cathedral in absolute awe with tears in your eyes, overwhelmed with emotion beyond words, that is also your subconscious mind resonating on the deepest and most profoundly human level with something I can't even express, but I know so well. These are all elements of life we live with every single day. In fact, if you got up and walked across the room today, you used your subconscious mind. Because once upon a time, when you were a baby, that was a very conscious process. And this is why I'm asking what a Christian approach to science would look like. Here are bare facts of reality. The reality of our mind. The science of our mind. What does Christianity have to say about them? That it's witchcraft? So walking is witchcraft? Now, I recognize I'm making an extreme case, but I have to in order to put my finger on the very thing that just a second ago was making you question whether you'd ever listen to me again. There is something there. It's very uncomfortable to look at. We don't have good tools to talk about it, and yet we need to. Hiding in the dark from fear of material reality hasn't served Christians for decades and will continue not to. We must begin marching forward into uncertainty and trust we can figure it out along the way or else we will simply continue to lose. And if you want to reply by saying, we lose down here because my kingdom is not of this world, I think maybe you are listening to the wrong podcast. Give me my phone back. And so, coming back to John David, I regard him as a good man who is on a journey to understand many of these same topics I'm talking about. And as you'll hear during this more than four-hour conversation, which follows literally a whole weekend of in-person conversations we had a month ago, he's grappling with the same questions of sovereign grace that we all use to inform our lives, while also knowing very well what works from his practice of helping hundreds of men. How do we square these things? To be very clear, neither of us argue for a reckless pragmatism. Just because it works doesn't make it godly. But at the same time, if your answer to every question, especially regarding health, is just rub some gospel on it, maybe we've come around to Mary Baker Eddy's Christian science after all. Jeepers. In our conversation, John David and I discussed his personal process of sanctification, being saved by grace versus works, the flaws of red pill thinking, the question of who is our neighbor, the cost of smashing our idols, coping, fixing, soothing, and numbing, and finally, eliminating versus cultivating the danger in men. If you enjoy the Renaissance of Men podcast and are still enjoying it after this episode, thank you. I spent years of my life exploring the physical world and the world of spirit, and my nature as an explorer hasn't gone away. So I hope you'll appreciate this attempt to go a bit off-road and see what we can see.
If you'd like to help the podcast grow, you can do so by leaving a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts or a five-star rating on Spotify. Plus, share this episode or another one of your favorites with a friend. The Renaissance of Men podcast is proudly sponsored by Reformation Coffee, providers of fine coffee beans hand-roasted by Pastor Brandon Lansdowne and his family in Springfield, Missouri. It's officially Christmas shopping season, and you and I both know that everyone on your list loves coffee. Bros and besties, friends and spouses, family members, neighbors, and coworkers. Probably even your kids, too. And what better gift is there than kingdom-building, family-supporting, God-glorifying, always-reforming, based and handsome three-piece suit-wearing coffee? None. There is no better gift. You know it. I know it. Everybody knows it. It's science. And you can get a head start on all the cool kids by going to reformationcoffee.com and choosing from their Ethiopia, India, Brazil, and Guatemala roasts. Or if you can't make up your mind, choose the sampler and try them all. You can even order decaf for people on your naughty list. And for the gift that keeps on giving, you can also subscribe to Reformation Coffee year-round by signing up for regular coffee delivery. And when you do, enter the code SUBFREE to get one free 12-ounce bag of coffee with your new subscription. Yep, that's right. When you sign up for the gift of coffee delivery, you get free coffee on the house. Literally everybody wins. Now that is some holiday spirit. Again, go to ReformationCoffee.com for more, and let's get Brandon roasting overtime. And please welcome this week's guest on the podcast, the author of the new book, I Can't Believe How Easy This Is, How to Conquer Screen Addictions with the Power of Your Subconscious Mind, and my good friend and brother in Christ, John David Haskins. John, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks, man. It's good to be here. I've been looking forward to it. I'm super excited. Yeah, you know this. Um, I remember that that first that first episode we did. Well, we went for like four hours that first time. I think, right? <laughs> we went for a while. I also think it was almost exactly two years ago, if not two years ago, two years and one month. Really? Yeah. I should check. I should check on that. Yeah, I just remember that. Um, I I never told you this, but I was actually uh, I was up way too late talking with a girl the night before. And so I was pretty exhausted throughout that whole conversation. I mean, obviously I was in a good mood and happy, but it was like, oh man, I got to do a podcast now on like four hours, four hours of sleep. Yeah. We talked for quite a while, got a lot out of it. So let's see what we can get out of this one. Yeah. Yeah. So, okay. So it's, it's kind of wild that it's been a couple of years. I, I, I thought maybe it had been a year and a half. So like, um, so let's catch up. Like what's, I mean, I know a ton of things have changed for you, including you've grown a mullet, which is, <laughs> I, I want to talk about that most of all. <laughs> you know, step. most people do. <laughs> I can't help it, man. As a non-hair American, I just gotta, I just gotta know what it's like. Dude, <laughs> Don't do I that think, to me. <laughs> I think the mullet chooses you. I've, I've had this discourse <laughs> with a lot of different people. It's, I think, it, it, it comes over you and it's like, it's time to get the mullet. What I tell people is you spend enough time down South. It turns out you get a mullet and you start listening to country music. So you go through my playlist. It's like only country music these days. So Texas is doing me well. Yeah. I remember we were, um, we were at, together at Jeremiah's wedding and that was uh that was everything playing in the car was uh, a <laughs> country, country music and worship music. I'm like, Oh man, he's, <laughs> he's yep. become a Southerner. Yep. I've embraced it. So like, so it, it, the mullet, like it, it just, it just comes over you and then it changes everything from the outside in. Like how exactly does it stop? I'm not exactly sure how it works. I know you got some people that have good mullets. I know you got some people that have bad mullets. I'm fortunate to have one of the good ones, but it suits. 
I've had enough people that they told me like, dude, it suits you really well. Like it, it fits my face shape. It fits my personality. Yeah. Turns out more often than not, I do kind of switch from like business professional mode to party mode. And then when I actually go out and like network or go to weddings, it, it just, it just works. It, it, Get a compliment it, it, on it almost every time I go out. Heard some crazy it. ones too. Like, uh, it was called a Kentucky waterfall. Mm-hmm. And a Florida follicle, which are two of my favorites. <laughs> Florida, the Florida follicle. And the type of people that compliment you on a mullet are the exact type of people you would expect to compliment someone on a mullet. Really? They're like, that's a nice looking mullet you got there. <laughs> yeah. All right. Yeah, they're all they all would say they've either had mullets or want mullets. Yes, it, it's it, it's a it's a status it's a southern status symbol. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. So okay, so other than, other than the mullet, what else has been going on for you these past couple of years? Which came first, the mullet or the personal transformation? <laughs> I think the mullet and the personal transformation are synergistic. I think they work together. But a lot of it has came from you know last time we did the podcast, I was living at my parents' house. Still, I was based out of Central Illinois. And since then, I've done a lot of traveling down south. I've spent a good chunk of time out in Florida, out in Tennessee. I made my way as far as Nevada and Arizona, which in Phoenix is mm-hmm. where we met in person for the first time, which was a wonderful experience. So I, I've had a lot of in-person things. Like it, it used to be once my online business started and I was kind of hovering in and out of, you know, what we call money Twitter or money X now, and then Manosphere. And the Manosphere at that time was... It was pretty pretty heavily red pill, but it was also starting to become red pill adjacent where now we're starting to see a Christian revival, which is really cool. And I, I, I would love to talk about how my faith has grown a lot this year. 2023 is the first yeah. time that it's, it's, it's transcended being something that I was raised with and know that I should do where it was more of like what I'll say religion and then it becoming personable and a, and a real relationship with Christ coming from that and a lot of questions being answered, which has been, which has been really cool for me. And that was, that was actually the catalyst for that or one of the questions that was proposed to me or ideas was <clears throat> I was in Destin, Florida, and I was on a podcast it was and it was a Catholic podcast. The guy wanted to have me on talk about you know quitting porn and stuff and get my perspective on it. And one of the things that he said to his audience was for those that are struggling to invite Christ or invite the Holy Spirit to come in and help with that. And I don't know why, but that was not something that I hadn't considered. Like I know we accept Christ, but this notion of inviting him in was was very intriguing. So I remember going through some stuff, you know, the question of where do I want to move completely lacking in a in-person community that would help level me up because that was one reason why I got out of Illinois was because, you know, I've got friends and family there who I all love dearly, but it it started to become where I felt like a big fish in a little pond. Mm. And I needed to get out so I could start improving and start leveling up in different ways. And then also, you know, being a young, single Christian man, the pursuit of a young, single Christian woman would be much easier, turns out, once you get down into the Bible Belt or just down south as opposed to the Midwest. So I was juggling 
that on and off this year, I've been dealing with some health problems and it, it, it came in January where it was just, it was overwhelming between business, health stuff, wanting to move, looking for community, wanting to date, be in relationships. I had this moment where I was journaling at the kitchen counter and I remember writing and praying and being like, God, there is way too much going on right now, way too many different problems that I have to sort through and I can't do it on my own. But I know that you can come into this and you can start to offer solutions to problems or make things whole, whatever that looked like, without me even being consciously aware of it, with it just happening, with it just co-inspiring. Then what was really cool was even in the coming weeks, the coming months, I would do things or I would run into situations and I would handle them completely differently without even thinking about it. Like it was just an automatic, an automatic transformation and smaller things that compounded that I would tie back to, you know, it's, it had to have been, it had to have been that prayer. And that was the first time where I started to experience more of an intimate connection with, with Christ. And Mm -hmm. that has propelled me this year an awful lot. And at that time in Florida, I was going to a small church and it, some of the, you know, moving, I, I didn't, I wasn't involved at a church back in Illinois. And from the last podcast, I talked about why it was because I went through that being canceled mm-hmm. where I was kicked out of the two churches that I went to. And for the extra year and a half, two years that I was still based in Illinois, it turns out that getting canceled is a pretty traumatic experience. So I wasn't involved socially in the church. I wasn't going to a church and I didn't even care to go out and find other church bodies to join Mm. and different reasons for that. But ultimately it wasn't something that I was both physically and emotionally comfortable doing. It was a, it was a great stress. So once I got on the road, one of the things that I wanted to do was start going to churches. And I, I cannot remember the exact details of the sermon series that they were going. I, don't, I can't tell you anything about it. I think the church's name was was Sunrise City Beach or something like that <laughs> based out of Mary Esther, Florida, which is right next to Destin, Florida, or right next to Fort Walton Beach, Florida, which is where I was staying. Anyways, the sermon series was on sanctification. Oh, wow. And what stood out to me more than anything was that sanctification is a unique process between you and God, and it's entirely personable, and it is carried out on a set timetable. <laughs> and it's going to happen. And it's going to happen regardless. And that offered me a great deal of peace, a great deal of grace, and ultimately laid a, a, a very strong foundation. Like I had the Christian upbringing, you know, homeschool Christian kid, Born and raised, I accepted Christ as my Lord and Savior at the age of six. <laughs> I don't know how much we count these, but, you know, infant yeah. baptism. My, my dad's dad was Catholic, so I got baptized as an infant, which I'll <laughs> probably do that out of my own will in the near future. But um, so I had the foundation. But then this talk of sanctification, this thing that was like a unique process between me and God, it was something that I started to think a lot about. And in it was just through my own Bible time. It was through my own conversations with other Christians that these dots would start to connect. And it, and it all happened 
you know, because I had that journaling session after a Catholic guy was like, invite. And then after this church sermon was talking about sanctification. And those were, those have been two big things that have stuck with me because, because it was so much of, so much of wanting to exert my own will into things that ultimately are not up to me. And I think that's, that speaks to one of the hallmarks of the Christian walk, right? Is this, is this, it's, it can, you can exercise your will or it can be God's will. And time and time again, when I either submit, surrender, or invite, there's this sense of peace and things that are not supposed to happen fall away. And sometimes that includes pain or grieving or whatever. But in the, in the midst of all that, there's this sense of peace. There's this deep knowing that I honestly couldn't tell you that I've felt as much as I have throughout this year, which has been wonderful because this year has, I've encompassed, or there's been more change in my life than ever before, not just with moving, not just with the hairstyle, not just with business, but with, 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 I mean, every aspect of my life has gone on, has undergone some kind of improvement. And it all started because, you know, because of that time I had in Florida, which has been really cool for me. That's amazing. That's, that's, first of all, I relate very much to a lot of that, that the sanctification is the, 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 the process of attaining to a, a, per, a measure of personal holiness and to watch the way that our lives are slowly transformed from the inside out, brought more into alignment with the Christian faith and, and practice, and the way that things and people and life paths and all and decisions just kind of fall away to go in a much, I guess I would say, healthier direction. And by healthy, I mean, you know, not just not just physical health, but all the different markers of health, spiritual health, emotional health, relational health, all the people around us. To watch that happen in my own life has been uh, very powerful and also like a little scary, uh, a little bit like there's, yeah, there's, yeah, it's like, it's, it's kind of all moving on its own, on its own timetable. I don't happen to have a copy of the, t- the timetable. <laughs> I didn't, I did not receive that. But to, to, again, to surrender to it and, and to submit to it has been one of the most powerful things that I've ever been through, especially considering the many years that I spent doing like new age inner healing stuff. And this is what I tell people mm-hmm. is the amount, of, the amount of inner healing work that I did, just absolutely turning myself inside out over and over and over again, trying to dump out the contents of, of my mind and my heart and how much change that generated, which, I mean, it did generate change compared to the changes that I've experienced just over the past couple, three years without having to do any of that gut-wrenching work, it's, it's, it's profound. I'd say that it's like, the, it's like the steak version of what I'd previously been eating like a McDonald's hamburger. You know, this is what I always wanted the whole time. Mm-hmm. Well, and, it, and it, its hallmark trait is this sense of peace. Yeah. Like there have, been, there have been many times, both in my, my journaling, my Bible reading, my praying, my conversations with friends from church and people like you. And it, it's been like things will come up and I'll go through things and I'll be dealing with things. But there's this peace. There's this peace. And, and one thing that I remind my fellow Christians is that God does not work through a spirit of fear or anxiety. And the times that I have encountered the most anxiety have been completely flipped on their, like absolved completely once there's either been that surrendering, that submission, or inviting the Holy Spirit, inviting Christ into whatever that is. It's like, 
I mean, it's like the flip is switched instantly. Mm-hmm. So, so there's this sense of peace. And I don't know if people forget about that. I know there've been times that I've forgotten about it, but I think we're supposed to feel peace a lot more, a lot more often. And it, and it comes hand in hand with, with this process of sanctification. And, and one thing that I want to bring up too is because I've experienced in my own life with, this, especially this year, is it's less about doing and it's more about making a decision which then comes with making a commitment. And it's it's because because I, I it's not I know I'm not exerting my will. Like mm-hmm. the things that I do when I can tell, like the conversations that I have, like the other when you and I were together and we were preaching the gospel to the to the other John, there mm. was countless instances in that conversation where it's like something tells me I didn't just say that. Something <laughs> yes. like that wasn't me. Yeah. And, and that's just a really cool thing to experience because it, so it's it's not doing it's the Holy Spirit working through it's it's some decision some kind of committance and it's very cool and it, it's even hard to put into words but it's I I think Christians I know myself oh of course <clears throat> so it's this it's this it's this transformation from wanting to be the one who does it so faith by works. Mm. Like there were a point in time where if you had asked me, I would have, I would have told you, yeah, if this whole Christianity thing could have been faith by works, I would have preferred that because it makes sense. It makes sense to the conscious mind because right. it's, it's something that we can do to then feel the way that we'd like to feel this, this, this knowing based on my actions that this outcome is foreseen or written in stone, but that's not how it works. So it was through that, it was through that like understanding. So it was, it was through understanding sanctification and then the other thing that came in was realizing that when you are truly saved, you are truly saved. And there's not anything that I can do that revokes that. Yeah. And I and I don't know if I ever like explicitly believed contrary that I can lose my faith, but there was this once I like once I finally accepted, like once I like I'm saved. My fate is sealed. Mm-hmm. It was just this, this like, whoa. <laughs> I'm yeah. so glad it's not by works. It is by grace. It is by faith. It is by believing that Christ is the son of God. And, I, and I'll tell you this, and I, I should almost go and get my, my notebook because I was doing some Bible reading yesterday. Go get it. And I was kind of, I'll probably go get it. I was kind of skimming through the New Testament and uh, I was reading through Ephesians 3 and 4 that I made my way to first and second Peter, I spent some time in first, second, and third John. And the, there's this whole idea that Christians don't sin. And there's this, you know, when when the jailer wanted to have him and his household be saved, it was just accept that Lord, that Jesus is Lord, mm-hmm. that he is God. And there's this strong differentiation, like when the when the when Paul or John or Peter, they talk about, you know, beware of false teaching, beware of false preachers. If they do not admit that Christ was flesh, and if they do not admit that Christ is the Son of God, then it's it's be weary. And it's just this recurring, like, because it comes down, because everyone wants to know, what do I do? What do I do? What do I do? Works. Mm-hmm. You believe that Christ is the Son of God, that he died and that he rose again. As far as I'm concerned, the rest, <laughs> praise the Lord, is a work of the Holy Spirit. And I know, so the the big hindrance that came for me that prevented me from really believing that or like accepting that 
was this thought that if I accept it, what if I use it as justification to sin? Right. And I've talked to other people to know that there are others have that same thought process. If I accept all these great things, that it's not me, that it's the Holy Spirit in me, what if I use it as justification to sin? And for me, it was it was something as simple as accepting, well, I don't want to sin. And if I accept it, then sinning is the antithesis of it itself. So I, I, I don't remember exactly how I overcame it, but it was this notion that just again, it was peace. No, mm-hmm. I'm not going to abuse it. That's not how that works. So then just accepting that I can alleviate myself of the conscious exercise of my will, my want for control, and accepting what has been freely given to me. Mm-hmm. Just have to accept it. I've made mistakes, as we all do. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm uniquely human through this process, but it's not this, There's there's not been any condemnation in it. It's not this view with my personal relationship with God the Father that he's this mean, angry guy that doesn't have good things to say about me. He, he's got some pretty great things to say about me and, <laughs> and about you and about everyone else, everyone else who's been saved. The Lord has some pretty awesome things to say about us. And knowing that it's not like, oh, well, I'm saved so I can go and do this thing. I don't want to do the bad thing. Yep. I don't want to go out and like sin. Now I sin, <laughs> right? I'm a human. But, and that's where, that's, dude, there's so much, there's so much, there were so many dots that were being connected. Like I'd have so many different questions while I was reading the Bible yesterday. And like, I would hear myself ask it and then I would keep reading and like, there's the answer. It's like, oh, there's the answer. And yeah, it's just been, so, it's just been so cool, man. The Lord's I, done a lot of work over this last year. feel that. Yeah. And uh, I'm, I'm really grateful for the chance to talk about this. Um, for all sorts of reasons, among them is because these are questions that just yesterday, so I have, I have another friend that I've known for about 10 years and, uh, we met in the new age world and he's been very seriously, uh, considering Christianity and, uh, we've been extend sending very long voice notes back and forth on, on telegram. So like, um, and just yesterday, like maybe last week I sent him 20 minutes and we've known each other for a super long time. So we have that kind of relationship. Uh, and then, and then uh, last week was 20 minutes. And then yesterday I sent him 30 minutes on this exact subject because um, on, on the subject of saved versus uh, grace, uh, faith versus works, right? Justify, justified, et cetera. I, I was talking with him about this, this very same subject around, around the idea of how are, we, how are we justified and how the word justified has two different meanings, right? Like how are we justified before God versus how are we justified before men? And then also the notion of that you, what you what you raise, which is that if I know that I'm saved, then does that give me carte blanche to sin? Like I'm good. Me and God are good. Watch me just go ride it like you stole it. It's like no, that's that's not how that that's not how that works. In fact, it's 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 the opposite because you suddenly feel so convicted over your sin that sins that in the past would have been minor offenses at best suddenly have the most significant gravity to them. Suddenly it's like, oh, like, yeah, of course, on the, on the grand scheme of things, like, it, you know, it's, it's not, I'm not robbing a bank, you know what I mean, or anything like that. But it's like, I really, okay, I, fee, I feel that I need to repent or I need to confess. 
And so it doesn't, be, it doesn't become the sort of thing where, you know, you, you suddenly have this, have this gold, gold seal of approval to do whatever you want. You're actually free of all the things that caused you pain, right? Mm-hmm. Sometimes they still have to be kind of peeled off through making mistakes and that's part of the process. But it doesn't, it doesn't work the way that, that people are afraid that it does. Like can't, and really, I, what I hear them asking is like, can I trust myself with this? It's like, yeah, you can, because God's got you. And the sanctification mm-hmm. process, as we were talking about, the timetable is moving through your life. And yeah, it's going to be painful. Like I've had over the past couple, three years, I've had you know, whole groups of people removed from my life all at once because they were not going my way. I didn't know that's what it was at the time. It was just these really painful events that I went through. Um, but only later was it revealed like, yeah, no, those, those guys were not going your way. You know, Manosphere, red pill guys, particularly, you know what I mean? It's like, I'm going a new direction. Mm-hmm. I didn't even know, I didn't know what sanctification was really at the time. I just knew mm-hmm. that suddenly like all of these, all of these interests and all these people and all these relationships that I, that I thought were so important were just pruned away, you know, all at once. And then, but then I began to see that like, yeah, no, that was, that was part of the plan. That was part of the plan. That was me being saved from myself and to witness that process unfolding, to witness the process of my own, my own sanctification, my own regeneration, my own changing of my desires to be naturally brought in line with what God wants for me is it, it brings the peace that you're talking about because mm-hmm. I don't have to, I don't have to white knuckle through decisions anymore, right? Mm-hmm. Like, I don't know what's the right thing. What's the right thing here? I find that I'm a new creation who naturally desires the right thing and mm-hmm. doesn't want the wrong thing anymore. Right. I don't even care. Get it away from me. Mm-hmm. And that I think is the answer to the question. Like, well, if, if I knew that I couldn't lose my salvation, would I just, would I just become terrible? It's like, no, because if you really, right. really knew it, you would become a better a better person than you thought possible because it's not actually you doing it. <laughs> that's that's right. the trick of the whole thing. Mm-hmm. Yes, yeah, that's that that is it is true. It's once you accept, it's not you, and that's been so cool, so 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 cool. So I remember that uh, that you had spoken to Michael Foster and he had recommended some books, um, and which is funny because uh, one of them was called Easy Chairs and Hard Words by Doug Wilson which I asked him, I listened to that in audiobook and I asked him about that on our podcast a couple of weeks ago. And then I think of the other one that uh, Michael Foster recommended was um, Chosen by God by R.C. Sproul. Mm-hmm. And that, has, that actually came up from a completely different source. And I have that one right here. Have you been working your way through, through these books? No, I, I haven't yet. I have, I have um, the one by Doug Wilson. I ordered Chosen by God and it never it either shipped and got returned to sender or they didn't have enough to fulfill the order so i have the book i might even have the book you know i have it upstairs on my nightstand i've i have the intent to start reading it i haven't yet started Mm -hmm. reading it but it's on the to read list Mm -hmm. i'm doing a lot more reading than i like this year that's another fun thing is i've been reading a lot more which fiction books nonfiction books i've enjoyed that where it was I, i there was some kind of connection that was made in my mind where it's like the things that I really want to learn are in books mm-hmm. and I've just been reading more books. Yes. That's that. That's I, I relate very much to that. In fact, it's just in the past year that I've kind of accepted that what I do to relax is I read, right? That's just, that's just mm-hmm. what I do. Like if I need to relax, I don't, I don't watch TV. I don't watch 
YouTube. I don't watch Netflix. I don't have, I don't even have a TV. I have a TV. It's just not plugged in. So it's like, whatever. I just sit down with a book. Doesn't really matter what it is. And that's what I do to, that is literally what I do to relax is read, Mm -hmm. which is, which is nice. It also feels a little strange, but that's just how, that's just how I am. Yeah. It's been nice. I've been reading through Dune and I'm not very far in it. Like I'm Mm. like, I, like I'm reading more like, and when I say more, like for context, I don't think last year I read a single book. Oh wow! This year I've read more than a single book. I've also written a book. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, we will. And I we also will, wrote a book. We will get to that. Yes, exactly. Yes, we we will. will. Yes, we will. I can't believe it's. I can't believe it was that easy to write a book. So <laughs> yeah, 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 yes. Um, but yeah, I've been reading Dune. That's been fun. And the the thing with fiction books that's that I've been thinking about while reading the book is this: like you read a fiction book. And you're having an entire world impressed upon your mind. Mm-hmm. And it will forever and always exist in your mind. Like it's, it's creating the entire landscaping of a new reality. And that's just, a, that's just kind of a thought that's came up where I thought like this whole book reading thing, like especially fiction books, is actually pretty crazy. Like what it does, how it interacts with your brain, how it interacts with your subconscious mind and your conscious mind, the whole storytelling, which, dude, Christ preaching in parables is like, (laughs) it's the most appropriate way to reach people. And one thing that I find super interesting about Christ preaching parables is more often than not, he would, he would tell his stories and then the crowds would disperse after the story was told. And it was left for them to ponder, to wonder, to think about it and draw their own conclusions. When asked specifically hey, Christ, what was the meaning of this parable? An answer was provided. We're fortunate enough to have the answer provided in the, in the New Testament, in the Bible. But I, but I often have wondered, what if we didn't have the deep meaning explained to us? Mm-hmm. What if we just had the stories? What if we just, just had the stories? Without, the, without like the, the explanation of what, yeah, what, yeah. what if we just had to sit with the, the plain text itself and walk away with it like the, like the people in, in the Bible did? It's something I've thought about. Because 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 stories it's 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 peak persuasion and it's it's by far the most effective way to communicate to a, a deeper emotional essence itself, which is where when things are accepted at that level, they're really accepted. Like the conscious mind can go, oh yeah, that makes sense. But once once what I know to be the subconscious mind latches onto it, because like in in my in my faith stuff that I mentioned prior, it wasn't my conscious mind going, oh that makes sense. Because I had it explained to me many, many times. And you'll also notice that the occasions that that John, that Paul, that Peter, James, that when they were writing their letters, they would mention things. This is beyond your understanding. Mm-hmm. This is beyond our knowledge. That, that can be interpreted as it's beyond our human comprehension, which is part of it, 100%. But then it's also... What I know, like when, when I was explained this thing of sanctification, when I was explained this idea of inviting the Holy Spirit, when I had my own reflection and realizing that by accepting these things, no, I won't use it as a get out of jail free card. It was, it was this deeper sense. It was this like, and it's hard to even put into words once more, but it's, it's, it's this emotional click. It's not, oh, that makes sense. It's, it's akin to that feels right. Mm-hmm. which again is 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 cool because you ha- you can have these things explained to you so often so many times and then there's that one instance where it surpasses understanding and it hits clicks and you feel it and you go mm-hmm. 
I finally have it, which is why these parables are cool. Because stories do that more efficiently than telling someone word for word, line for line, data point by data point, these complex legalistic things. Because mm -hmm. if you read, what, what was it? I did so much reading um, probably James in the book of James. Was it the book? I think, oh yeah, I think it was. Where he oftentimes addresses the readers as little children. Hmm. And if we think about little children for a moment, one thing that's super interesting is kids are pretty much entirely subconsciously minded up until the age of like six to eight, where they're just a sponge soaking things up and everything that they say, everything that they hear, it's just, it's this like, it's this building block experience. But it's, it's, cause, it, cause if you're, if you think like a little kid does, you don't get caught up on the technicalities of these terms or these words or what did, what did he mean when he said this? It's if you think like a little kid, you can then exercise well, it's not you exercising faith, but the faith component comes in where like, sure, I could explore the depths of theology and apologetics, but I could also make myself like a little kid and go, yeah, dad was right. There's a time and a place for both. Mm -hmm. But I really like making myself, yeah, dad was right. And with stories, storytellers, right. And the stories, the, the power of, of parables is that you get to see the ideas in motion as opposed mm -hmm. to just being just being taught the right. principles right like you right. get to like one of the one of the um one of the books i often recommend is uh the queen's code by alison armstrong which is a book mm. that helps women learn how to communicate with men in a way that is respectful to men again as i always have to say it's not a it's not a christian book but i think it has a lot of really wonderful things to say um, that that I can easily fit into a, a Christian framework, especially with you know wives respecting their husbands, et cetera. Mm -hmm. But the power of that book is that it's written in the form of fiction, right? Where you get to, it's not just a bunch of principles that are laid out like a manual, right? Or a nonfiction book. You get to see the way that these ideas flow through the lives of, of characters, mm -hmm. right? And there's something, there's something about that that fits probably uh, a little better in the same way that parables do, because you, you, I, I would imagine that you have a couple different audiences. You have people who are educated, right? In 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 the Bible Bible days, you have people who are who are educated formally, and people who weren't. Maybe they weren't familiar with sitting in a, in something approaching like a, even a tutor situation, like a classroom situation, and being taught principles that they can then put into action. They learn by doing. And so you you can demonstrate to people the ideas you're talking about by making it practical in the language of everyday experience that they already speak fluently. But then other people who might be more educated, then you can give principles because that's how they're familiar with learning. And mm -hmm. and and the the mastery of Christ as teacher is that he always seems to know. Oh, well, of course he does. How to speak directly to the people that are in front of him, whether it's mm -hmm. Pharisees you know, false teachers, arrogant false teachers, whether it's the woman woman by the well or whether it's his own disciples who somehow who sometimes need even stricter words, whether it's the everyday common folk. Like he he I was I was talking to one of my clients about this. It's there's a tendency to try and boil Christ down to just like meek and mild. He was so sweet and so loving. It's like, no, he actually was presented very different aspects of himself 
to very different people. He knew how to speak to the people that were in front of him. And that wasn't always the same way, even though we get a very, uh, a very uh, narrow picture of him, you know, with the long, long hair, hippie Jesus holding a lamb. It's like, ah, it wasn't, it wasn't always how it was because he knew how to relate to the people in front mm-hmm. of him, which is when you realize that he was God, it's, it's pretty remarkable to think that God actually came to relate to us mm-hmm. individually, God with us, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The, 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 that, well, that's, that's where we're like, I've spent a lot of time recently reading more of what Paul has written. Mm-hmm. And then yesterday it was contrasted with things that Peter had written or things that John had written, you know, eyewitnesses to Christ. Yeah. And what, what, what seems to be on the surface is Paul is preaching faith by faith, by acceptance, by belief, grace, salvation. And then it, it seems on the surface to be that the apostles, you know, the disciples, the apostles, Peter, John, etc., were preaching this, this, you will know them by their fruits in this works but begin getting the complete picture, you know, because because I, again I come back to the you know when when I think it was I think it was John where he talks about Christians don't sin, and I was like, what is what does he mean by this? Mm. What does he mean by this? And some of what I have learned over the last year through a particularly non-Christian lens, but that has been enhanced and proven to be effective, I'll say, through what I know based on biblical truths, is this, if, if Christians don't sin, because what you have is this idea, and I talk about it in my book, where you are who you are because you do what you do, and you do what you do because you are who you are, which speaks to our identity, which then speaks to our actions. So a football player plays football. And then in the New Testament, you have this Christians don't sin. And when you take on a new identity. We take off the old man, we put on the new man. It's not that should you do something where you momentarily and temporarily engage in a way that the old man would have once engaged in mm-hmm. to sin, that doesn't bring you back, that doesn't re-enlist a former identity of the old man. Mm. You don't become the old man in the moments that you sin. Because I was thinking, how does this, how does this Christians don't sin? Christians don't sin because sin, sinning, doesn't make the Christian a non-Christian. Cause because like I'll see people, I'll see Christians where they're like, oh, I'm a sinner, I'm a sinner, I'm a sinner. And I and I I don't know about you, but I I like I vehemently disagree with this notion of claiming the identity of a sinner, if anything, sinners saved by grace. Right. Because they then leave that you're identifying, out. right. A lot of Christians, yeah. you know, what's, what's the, uh, Lord Jesus have mercy on me, a sinner. Like, yeah, we're, we're, we're sinners up until a point. And then we're made new. Our hearts are renewed. Our minds are renewed. Our body is renewed. We are effectively mm. and undoubtedly a new creation. So you get these Christians, oh, I'm a sinner. Oh yeah, but I'm a sinner. <laughs> like I said, at least a sinner saved by grace. But more correctly, you're a Christian. Right. You're a Christian. People forget that part, and because 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 uh, in the work that I do with men, wh- whether it's struggling with porn addiction or other screen addictions, or even just 
things like I've, you know, the business owners that I've worked with that don't have screen problems or porn problems. It's this, if you, you revitalize your identity, you figure out in a, and some of it's, it's this, it's this value work of, this is the kind of man that I want to be. What are the kind of values that this man upholds? The best way to do this is, of course, to base those things off of the irrefutable truths that have been presented in the Word of God, in the Bible. Base this off of your Christian values, your, your Christian identity, who you are in Christ. But then we get to take that on our personal, which I say personal as if it's not to imply that that's not personal. That is the most intimately personal value set an identity that you can take on, which was revealed to me throughout this year, mm. where it was like, oh my goodness, it's 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 all it's all connecting, it's all making sense. But in a secular sense, you can pick and choose your values. You can you can craft an identity for yourself, and in doing that, like with my clients, if they do encounter some kind of relapse or slip up or do something that I I just refer to as less than desirable because I really don't like calling a relapse a relapse and there's there's reasons why sure. but it is not that you become once again the person who does that yes correct you you can view it as the greatest learning opportunity that no one wants to take or you can take it as a stark reminder of why it is best to not do that, to stay away from it, to gird and protect yourself, withstand against temptation, but then to immediately upon falling or slipping up or whatever you want to, whatever you, however you want to describe making a mistake, let's just say making a mistake. In realizing, I talk about this in chapter nine, a free man is free to learn from their mistakes. And that's mm. your worldly application. A Christian is not condemned by sin or by sinning. You're saved. It doesn't take you back to who you were before Christ. Now all that exists is who you are in Christ, mm -hmm. what Christ has made you. And what comes with that is the enemy loses a foothold that he has taken in many people's lives. Oh, you're not really saved because you just did that. That, that oppression, you're made new. You didn't just lose your salvation. And instead, in my book, I say, learn from your mistakes. As a Christian, you get to continue while the Holy Spirit works through you. Repent and confess. Make it known. So I guess in that sense, yeah, you are still learning from your mistakes. But it's not this. It's not this. Like when I'm working with a porn addict, they relapse. And I, and I talk about this in my book, chapter nine, once more. This because when I experienced it, when I had this long streak, it was this, oh no, I messed up terribly. I feel horrible. I can't believe I just did that. This must mean I'm still addicted. All these terrible things, these lies, these things that were not true, they were not even verifiably true from a conscious perspective. If you for from an addiction standpoint, if you have been sober from something for several months and you indulge that does not in any way, shape, or form indicate that you're still addicted. That's, that, that's not even how addiction works. And I don't even like to reduce it to the science, but it was this, you know, this, this year's, this, this time when it happened for me and it was this, oh no, this is horrible. This is terrible. I feel awful. Because then what happens is the enemy can very easily suggest to us, what does it matter if you do it again? You might as well. 
You already screwed up. And then to believe those lies can make it very easy to do it again. And I, I've, I've experienced that in my own life. But then with working with clients through this framework, and I, and I work, and I predominantly work with, with Christian clients, and I have contemplated only working with Christian clients. I have contemplated that. Um, that the, the, the aforementioned Catholic podcast that I was on, he even recommended, he's like, what's stopping you from only working with Christian clients? Anyways, maybe we can touch on that. Yeah, happy to. Sooner than later. Um, I do like to have the opportunity to give testimony. Like when I do work with non-Christians, I do like, Hey, I'm a Christian. And if Christ comes up, you're hearing about it, Mm -hmm. you know? Um, anyways, when working with clients to help them work through shame, both from the lens of helping them through memories of the past where shame had a strong foothold, but then also with this identity work, which if it's with a, with a non-Christian, the identity work is more from a secular lens, which is rooted in my Christian beliefs. But then when it's with a Christian, it's affirmed and reset with the Christian truths. But what happens is when you work through this shame, should you experience something less than desirable? Should you make a mistake? It's just that, making a mistake. It doesn't warrant you to continue on that path. Those old beliefs, oh, you're a loser, you're pathetic. God doesn't really love you or whatever comes up in those moments. You know them to be what they are, lies. You can, you're protected against them. So what the Christian, right? I've ex- I experienced this plenty of times, especially back when porn was the thorn in my side, which is one of the justifications that I used to keep watching it way back when it's a thorn in my side, but <laughs> it's this, it's this, it's akin to the sense that it doesn't matter, because it doesn't change where I'm headed. It doesn't revoke my salvation. In fact, it's it's a live action instance of sanctification taking place. It's the Holy Spirit, something coming in, working through that, letting you know. I mean, it's it's it he he's he's a dad that when he watches or sees you fall down, he doesn't laugh at you, he doesn't inflict any more pain, he picks you up, he comforts you, he lets you know it's okay. We're going to keep going. Let's get back up. Let's keep walking. I'm a terrible person. Oh, no. No, that is not of God. Certainly not of God. And that, that I think, was the, has been one of the uh, most wonderful things for me to discover because I think coming from outside the Christian faith, I know for a fact, actually coming from outside the Christian faith, the reason why so many people, particularly in the New Age world, progressive spirituality world, whatever you want to call it, reject God the Father is because he's portrayed as this judgmental, angry, vindictive, abusive kind of figure and um, very focused on the law, right? And if you read, if you just read the Old Testament, you, you would very easily get that, get that perspective. But what gets left out is the notion of grace and relationship, the idea of, uh, of, salvation, the idea of, of faith being a gift, the idea of regeneration, the idea of taking from you the heart of stone and giving you a heart of flesh and new desires, and that there is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus, mm-hmm. that it is, actually, it is actually the most profound, loving relationship that a human being can have with a father, so much so that even any, almost, almost any human father, well, every human father will fall short of that image. Mm-hmm. But they but they aspire to that image, 
And then to recognize that that loving relationship isn't just with a human father, it's with the creator of the universe. Mm -hmm. It's the most profound and humbling thing I can imagine. It, it, it strains it strains every piece of me to to conceptualize that that's the case. And in the in the face of that, getting back to you know what you said about Christians not sinning, I I know what you're saying is not that Christians don't commit sins. Of course, of course they do. We do we do all day, but the but we no longer desire sin. We struggle. We righteously struggle against sin. It's not like, well, I'm saved. Watch me go sin now. It's like, well, you're, you know, you're probably probably what not right. Are you reading <laughs> exactly? So, and I know that that's what you mean, and that's that's the glorious nature of the of the doctrines of grace is when it truly lands, when it clicks. I'll speak for myself. When I truly got it, when I really understood it, it just it drove me onto my knees in the best possible way and made my life into a living sacrifice. And in the face of the profound nature of that gift of relationship and eternal life, and that I didn't earn it, and that I don't deserve it, in fact, quite the opposite, and I can look back over my life leading up to that point and see that that was true, to be given that gift was like, my whole life is yours, Lord. You gave this to me in the first place. I don't deserve to be here. By rights, I should not be here. And yet here I am everything that I have is yours. And the the desire to sin became the furthest thing that I would that I would want. Like how can I make sure to do the right thing, not just out of fear of punishment, which is like 101 kind of level stuff, right? How can instead can I actively desire the good? And then that becomes that becomes a true walk of faith, a true recreated being. Not that I won't make mistakes, not that I won't have moments of weakness etc. That, of course, is part of the human condition. But to desire the good increasingly more and more all the time and to surrender to that and to know also to, to uh, when being faced with temptation that, yeah, I may be experiencing temptation to do this thing, but I know that's going to feel terrible when I'm done. Not that there's some condemnation that's going to come flying down from the mountaintop in the form of stone tablets that lie, land on my head, but I'm going to experience the pain of sin inside my own body, inside my own conscience. However tempting it may be, pass, hard pass, and desire the good instead. All of that, that total experience is the Christian walk, is the Christian life. And man, like I never had any of that explained to me, Not that, and that's not a complaint, but, I, but along the lines of something that you had said earlier, like people don't hear this stuff. They don't grow up with this stuff. They grow up quote unquote Christian, but the meat of the faith is completely left out from the preaching, from the household experience. When this is the this is the real stuff. I, I don't know. You don't see a lot of marketing angles for this kind of right? or be a recreated right. being in Christ, desiring only the good all the time and, and liberated from your well, sin. You know, it's not profitable. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. <laughs> that's that's what it is. Yeah. Is this 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 lens because it's not it's not what's the best way to say this? Because if it is you doing the work and facilitating the transformation, you rightly and reasonably must be the one to acquire the resources and the know-how to figure out how to do it. You can go through mm -hmm. sermon series after sermon series and read 
one Joel Osteen mm. book and then read a Beth Moore book and then whoever else, you know, pick your 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 Christianity fruit punch and then <laughs> that's where it's it's profitable and, and and yes in a in a monetary sense it's profitable but that's not what it is it, that is that is that is our human understanding which i would parallel with what i when i work with clients the conscious mind the the logic the analysis the the i want to feel this way so let's do this thing now i feel that way because when it's when it's this perception of works and perhaps it's not the full admittance of it's by works. Because as Christians, we all know it's not by works. But like I said in the past. Some people don't would, know that. Well, yeah, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Catholic. Most Christians. <laughs> yeah. Sorry. Oh, no, he said it, you know. I said it. Well, yeah. that's. We'll go uh, there. That's, yeah, well, yeah, I, I, I would like to go there. Anyways. The, the, it's this, I want to feel this way, so I have to do this thing to feel this way. Because that's how our human understanding reasons. That's how the conscious mind reasons. That's how the flesh reasons. The flesh, I want to do, I want to feel this. I have to do this. Now I feel this. Proper Christianity is not what I do. Mm-hmm. It is not what I do. It is a work of the Holy Spirit in me that facilitates the transformation, that then radicalizes the action that I take. I mentioned prior, I would do things completely differently without thinking about it effortlessly, without an exertion of my own will. It just happened. And it would be after the fact that I would realize I did that differently. It was, it was not this, this conscious-minded, this flesh-minded, this reasoning. It was the proper indwellingment of the Holy Spirit, which, which I've, I've said that a lot in my recent conversations with fellow Christians and on this and it's on this podcast. And I, I had this great reading session that I keep talking about yesterday, where it's not just the indwellingment of the Holy Spirit. It's, 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 the, it's the indwellingment of the Trinity, God, the Father, God, the Son, God, the Holy Spirit, which, is, which, is, which adds such a pronounced layer. It's so cool. I love it so much. I'm so, so thankful for it, which is like peak, right? Thankfulness, gratitude, love of God. Mm-hmm. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. I love God. And love doing what he wants me to do, but it, and it's mm-hmm. still not me doing it. It's God. It's all that working through me. Anyways, I don't need sermon series after sermon series after sermon series or whatever. All, I mean, most more often than not, I mean, I guess applies. We live in, you know, American non-denominational Christianity. And I say that going to an American non-denominational church because it's this human want to use human tools to feel this human way. And that's not Christianity. You have this gross overcomplication of Christianity, where in its simplest form, to the best of my knowledge, if you believe that Jesus is the Son of God, you believe in the resurrection, death conquered, just happens. And perhaps that's a gross oversimplification. But I also know that that caveat, that counterpoint, it's a gross oversimplification is my own conscious mind still coming up and going, but what about, but what about? And then it's the, the, the deep knowing, the peace to, to, to say it plainly. It's, it's, it's finished. It's done. Amen. Amen and amen. The, the freedom that my entire being is embodied by is overwhelming. And it's something that 
it's something that in conversations with friends, with clients, there's a certain way that you can conversate with people to be more emotional, to meet them where they're at and help them through their conscious reasonings to get a little deeper, a little lower, or not a little lower, but a little more in there mm-hmm. to then help people. And and another thing I'll say too is around the time we would have had this last podcast, I would have been more inclined to be a little judgmental of people mm. in general and more often than not. And once this whole sanctification thing became like, oh, yes, that is what it is. And I'm so thankful that is what it is. It's this, like, there's, it's this, it's this disgust that comes in my being when I see someone, anyone, Christian or not, that I would want to judge. And and it's just this correcting where it's like, hold on a second. They have an entire life ahead of them. They're going through their own stuff. Because it's like I used to like, oh, this group of people, that group of people. And like, I'll, I'll express a righteous disdain for certain groups of people because fundamentally when it's when it's something is anti-christian i'm gonna i'm gonna have my thoughts and my opinions but that's also like this top of funnel idea right this like grand scheme of things when you get down to the individual when you get down to the person to person this this meet them where they're at i in my heart of hearts i cannot judge someone and that's that's just been another and like, and it it'll, and it'll, it would happen, right? I'd make an offhanded comment about a certain different groups of people, the Catholics, the Jews, the Muslims, whatever. And it's usually more religiously based than anything. And my sister would go, that doesn't sound like Jesus. <laughs> and I'm like, ah, what do you mean? And, and she would say that and I would go, I really wish you weren't right. <laughs> and i don't think i've expressed that to her maybe i will after this i'll let her know um that's been another that that's another cool i mean you got to surround yourself with people of all ages my 16 and 18 year old sisters have have granted me insights that have been pivotal in my own walk with christ this year and in and in and in small things like that like that doesn't sound like jesus and like yeah like i said if if us when you have religious groups, dude, even like the Mormons, I really have my qualms with the Mormons. <laughs> I'm just gonna because I mean any group that like they have Christ, but then they botch their Christ- Christology. It's like it's 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 this disdain, but then it's this it's this. I wish you you had it how I have it. Mm. I wish you read the Bible that I have and read it how I read it, which. No, I think I'll, I think I'll leave that there. Like I'll say these things, rah, but then it's I wish you knew Christ. I, I wish I pray Christ reveals Himself to you as He's revealed Himself to me. I think that's the best way to say that. Yeah, I I, I completely understand. I've been talking through with um, with one of my clients around the question, uh, what is who is our neighbor, right? And um, my because we're supposed to love our neighbor, right? But who is that? The woke world would say would probably frame the t- idea of neighbor as like some abstract some abstraction of a group right embodying the idea that a group is can be homogenous well 
I, I don't know that that's a biblical way of thinking about who our neighbor is versus because it doesn't deal in abstractions. Uh, I hear, hear the gospel is dealing in uh, actualities, which is the person in front of you is your neighbor, right? So because you can say like, oh, my neighbor is like the Palestinians. It's like, what is, what is this thing called the Palestinians? This is not really a thing. It's an abstraction. Like, yes, in some sense, you could probably number the exact precise number of Palestinians, who people who live there, or whatever your characteristics are, but it's still an abstraction. I, you know, it's a label versus a Palestinian is a person who's directly in front of me. And that is, that is my neighbor. And that's where the real rubber hits the road. So when we're called to love yes. our neighbor, it is the person that is in front of us at any given particular mm-hmm. moment who is a, a real, an actuality right? As opposed to an abstraction. And this discussion mm. of, our, our, of our neighbor gets lost uh, because I guess maybe on some level we take the Christian worldview so much for granted, even the liberals do, that like, why should I care about anybody from an atheist worldview? <laughs> right? Like that's, that's, that's the ultimate flaw. Like there's no, if we're all just fizzing bags of chemicals in an empty, meaningless universe, why should I care about anybody? Why should I care about anything? And and so and so yes, like what you're what you're saying is very true. Is like how do I interact with anyone who doesn't share anyone who doesn't share my faith? Right? Do I interact with them at, like that individual as as I'm called to, or do I treat them as a representative of a group? And that's where things start to get problematic, and that's where you get mm-hmm. all different forms of of bigotry where it's like, care about your neighbor. The neighbor is this abstract group. So here is this abstract group. And I'm going to treat the individual like a representative of a group as opposed to an individual, mm. right? Things get, things get flipped around a little bit versus like, no, no, no. There's no such thing as this group. You can't prove that this group exists, but I can prove that this person right in front of me who may be completely different from me in many fundamental ways, I can prove that they're right there. Mm-hmm. And that's, that, that's where the rubber really hits the road for the Christian um, for the Christian walk is to say, I may be inclined to treat this person for no fault of their own, maybe because of some fault of their own, but for no fault of their own, just because of my own inherent biases, religion, all the different reasons that people don't like others. I'm in a bad mood, <laughs> right? <laughs> Whatever that is, you looked at me funny. I don't, I don't like, you've got a punchable <laughs> face. You know what I mean? <laughs> but instead to live that walk out in the everyday interaction is the is the is the true witness is really mm-hmm. when when who is this person that's moving through this contentious and this is uh, and I want to talk about um, we had talked about earlier working with uh, non Christian versus cr- exclusively Christian clients mm-hmm. I I've decided uh, sometime in the past six months that I will only work with Christian clients or clients who are like yeah, no, I'm seriously like, I'm feel very drawn in this direction. Like you don't have to come mm-hmm. free, like, but, but like, I don't work with secular clients. I don't work with people who aren't, who aren't uh, already intensely drawn in the direction of the Christian faith, or at least very, very open to it. Right. Mm-hmm. For, for that reason, because I, I don't know that there, cause that's where the interesting in part, that's where the interesting work is. That's where the meaningful work is. That's where we build men, um, that's where we build men who can make an impact because their foundations are are secure, and that's how you can set a witness. As I was saying, for people who are who have never been exposed to the true Christianity that we're talking about, but they see this guy who's moving through life 
in a totally different way. Mm-hmm. What does he have? Right. Right. And so, and so how we relate to our neighbor is a big part of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's, it's along with this, with this idea of meeting people where they're at, building rapport, because when you do that, you are then able to not engage with them in a way that will conflict with their map of the world. Mm-hmm. I have, I've read a book and in this book, it talks about how if you had the exact map of your client, your patient, your prospects, worldview, everything they do would make perfect sense. Mm-hmm. And I think about that a lot. Mm-hmm. Where when I'm working with my clients professionally, but also when I'm having personal conversations with my friends and loved ones, if I am able to best meet them where they're at, which requires me to listen to them, it also requires me to ask questions that are just ambiguous enough that they can fill in the blanks and tell me what they'd like to tell me, whatever's most pressed upon their heart at that time. But it's this, it's this if I knew their exact world map, everything they do would make perfect sense, which then means you can't get mad, you can't get angry, you can't, well, why did you do it this way? You did it wrong. Well, <laughs> without, the, without sounding too, without sounding secular or your truth, my truth, it's not wrong considering their experiences and things that have shaped them to that point. Mm-hmm. So in this, in, this, in this love your neighbor, I'll add the meet them where they're at, have those conversations, get to know them. And then in establishing that rapport, when you are able to offer to them advice or make suggestions or help to create reframes or even offer more information about their own map, you're able to do it in a loving way. But then the Christian, it's not the Christian that does it. It is an opportunity for those, for, the, for your neighbor to bear witness to the work of the Holy Spirit through you, which then, like you said, makes them go, something about this guy. There's he, something about him. There's a, there's a presence that he has that I want, which, you know, you can give testimony, you can preach the gospel, which we should do. Mm. We should continue to speak and have conversations that are as pointed about, as this about the, the reality of Christianity and the nature of God, the biblical truths in it. But if I were to walk up to a non-Christian and converse with them as I have with you on this podcast, it would be as if I'm speaking a different language. And while it might take a few days, a few weeks, maybe even a few years to get to the point where I can have this conversation with them, well, again, it's not my timetable, is it? Mm. So to be there for them, how would, how would Christ treat them? And we have a really good idea of how Christ treated people through his time, through his interactions. And then there's this, there's this, because you mentioned, you know, so many non-Christians that would classify themselves as as spiritual or new age or or non-Christians who are aware of Christianity. That's the classifier I'll use. They have this new this Old Testament view of God. And we of course have to preface it with with the God of the Old Testament is of course the same God of the New Testament. And there's was not some sort of transformation that took place in God from one covenant to the next. He's the mm-hmm. same, the Alpha and the Omega. Uh, 
didn't learn anything new, which is I've heard before, <laughs> like between the two, God grew and learned a bunch of stuff and changed as a result. <laughs> it's this, it's, it's this, it's where we have to go. Cause like you'll, okay. So you'll hear like Christians, right? Love the sinner, hate the sin, which is true. But when we talk about the abstractions that groups of people, it's the sin that groups of people are committing that ruffles my feathers. Mm-hmm. That makes me feel a certain way about them. So then, so then living between those lines. But again, of course, you know, if it weren't for the internet, we truly would not have this awareness of these massive groups as a whole. It would just be interacting with our literal neighbors because now, like, we were not created, nor should we have to withstand the stresses and the anxieties of knowing what is going on even for us Americans in the next state over because it used to be just communities and your communities were no bigger than a few hundred people for, for the vast majority of history. And now all of a sudden I'm one Google search away from going what's going on in Sweden or Russia okay. or Zimbabwe. And then, cause I'm a human with human emotions and us humans are rigged to be empathetic, to feel things that other people are feeling, even if it's not happening to ourselves because with the right type of input, you can simulate an emotional reality that is indistinguishable from the real reality. This is one reason why screens are so bad, especially once we talk about porn being terrible. What you see on that screen is, is your reality. It's influencing you. So being able to figure out what atrocities are happening to other people that we would never know exist. And as far as we're concerned, technically don't exist because of our perception of reality and what the implications of that are on reality. We have an emotional reaction to them if we're not guarded that would be indistinguishable to the emotional reaction that we would have if it either happened to us or if it happened to a loved one. Hearing of strangers on the internet and your war with the storytelling that comes with it is no different than if we or if our brothers and sisters were going through war. Hmm. And sure, you know, you can, you can, you know, you can big picture that. What about for, for the Christians? What about our brothers and sisters in Christ that are in the conflict or whatever? Ah. <laughs> I don't want to sound heartless, but we must first concern ourselves with what is going on in front of us and deal. Cause that's where God put us where we are present is where our attention should be at and our phones, our screens take us away from that. Even just the simple things. Could you imagine if when we had met for dinner, I were on my phone for even 51% of the time, even <laughs> sure. 20% of the time, or if you were on your phone while we were smoking cigars? Oh my goodness. Not only is it disrespectful, but it's a complete detachment from where we should be and putting us somewhere where we're not supposed to be. Now, I'm not going to demonize screens because nowhere in my book do I suggest you get a dumb phone. Right. But we have to be present because that's where the Lord put us. So love your neighbor and then worry about your neighbor's tribe later. I agree. I mean, that's that you make a really good point that I hadn't thought of before, which is like, we can only have, we can only have the perception of these groups really uh, fed to us through media. Right. So like, yes. so we could probably, you know, to some extent say that, our, our consciousness of groups in general has grown as media has grown going all the way back to say like the newspaper, right? In the second half of the 19th, mm-hmm. second half of the 19th century, 
prior to that, the notion of, of, a, of a group would have been far too abstract to even imagine. Like, okay, yeah, sure. You have like, I don't know, like I'm thinking of like gangs of New York. You know what I mean? You got the Irish, <laughs> right? Or the, or the Polish or whatever. Mm-hmm. But like, it's far too abstract because when you think, you know, maybe you're in, what does that take place in Manhattan or something like that? And like the, in the 1800s or something, like I think that's probably where that movie takes place. It's like, okay, so you have the Irish. It's like, well, what are the Irish? The Irish are like a group of guys whose faces I can kind of imagine. Beyond mm-hmm. that, the notion of, an, of a nation or a people starts to get far too abstract. But as soon as you start making newspapers and then films <clears throat> and then TV shows and, and then like social media, you start losing touch with the people that are in front of you. Mm-hmm. And that's what we're talking about. We have the phones in front of us all the time. And rather than dealing with a, a, an actual individual in front of us, we're interacting all day with abstractions of individuals, either their individual faces or, or groups. And we're mm-hmm. taken out of the moment and we live in this mediated reality, especially where individuals are, are manufactured to look like a group. Like all the edges that make an individual an individual get sawed off and they become this icon representing a group. That's the whole George Floyd thing. That's what happened with him, right? Is that he became an embodiment of, a, of the idea of a group and any notions of him that might have like, no, this was an individual with his own unique specific set of circumstances and own, you know, particularly uh, messed up blood chemistry at the time, et cetera, et cetera. All that got taken, got cut off of the narrative to make him into an embodiment of a group. And so he stopped being a person. In fact, mm-hmm. he's, almost, he's almost taken on religious symbolism, actually has taken on religious symbolism. And he's just one example so we're not even so once we move into this mediated age we're no longer dealing with individuals we're dealing with individuals as representatives of groups right mm-hmm. versus without media at all all we deal with all day long are individuals and the group mm-hmm. you know we're we're commanded as christians to forget about the group to forget mm-hmm. entirely there's no neither Jew, uh, Jew nor Greek slave nor free like don't forget yeah. about the groups that someone is a member of Interesting. Okay. So, so, um, media is antichrist. There we go. Good. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. It's this, it's this gross distortion of reality that can be controlled by whoever controls, (laughs) whoever controls the media, the media, the media. (laughs) Yes. Exchanging a knowing nod. (laughs) (laughs) Because, there's this, there's, because it, it's this, in, in the work that I do, you have your perception as your reality. And to have our perception of reality grounded in the Christian reality, that which has been told to us from God and the word of God, which then shines a light on our objective reality, it is not hard to, by changing your perspective of reality, change your complete understanding and experience of reality in in just the simple way that affects everyone this is our screen time mm. how much time dude v- practical example myself personally the casualty of me having my business be manosphere adjacent you know stop mm-hmm. watching porn is a big manosphere talking point then meant that i would 
casually consume a lot of other Manosphere content. And at the time that my business started, it was it was the tail end of the red pill, but it was mm. still mostly the red pill, which then proposes these just awful views of women and relationships and God and family dynamics, which then for me, my perception of reality was so distorted with women and with relationships that this year, by the grace of God, I have had to undergo a complete shift and a changing in that where in in it's in it's had to have happened in in moment by moment interactions. Like like I had a conversation with a friend of mine who she is interested in another friend of mine and he is interested in her and they have this this really they have this dynamic going on and we were on a co-ed church retreat camp thing together. And I, I sat next to her and I asked her what she thought about the sermon because we watched church live that day because it was on Sunday. And because of the way that I asked questions, <laughs> I didn't realize that I was, <laughs> I mean, of course I was doing what I do best, but it very quickly got to the point where she was talking about this relationship. She didn't know that I knew what she knew. I told her that I knew what I do, which was, oh my goodness, you know. Anyways, mm-hmm. it humanized, it, it added to my map, my map of the world, my reference point of this spectrum of emotions that, oh my goodness, women feel too, mm. which then offered a, a nuance because the red pill had me thinking if I said the right things and if I did the right things, I could get women interested in me which then proposed the performance anxiety of I have to say the right things and I have to do the right things to then get that interest, which if I do, I can, you know, works. We're back to works once more. And And in this conversation, and in this conversation, it was so much more than me real thinking about like works, things that done, things that are said. And it, it just, it offered this, like to, like I said, this like, oh, women feel these things and have these complications too, which the red pill would have completely distorted, if not deleted from my own awareness of these interactions. And when your technology has the power to do that, we have to be vigilant in our ability to both disconnect ourselves from screens to conquer screen addictions but then to have the simple ability that when I'm out with friends and should I know that I might experience the tendency to check my phone more than I would like to comfortably and confidently power off my phone and invite others to do the same. We, I mean, we, we, we need that. That is something that we need in, in yeah. our modern reality, both as for, for, for Christian reasons to, to be able to love your neighbor to be able to encounter and engage in these relationships, but even just for your own well-being. I mean, you're, I mean, the fact that your entire worldview can get so easily skewed by in by by entering into a negative echo chamber. Cause it's it's not this, because it's not this like, it's not this like small thing. Like it does not take an awful lot of content, an awful lot of information, and an awful lot of exposure to completely change your perspective of something. It only takes one 
oh, I hadn't thought of it like that. It, it only takes one mm, for, a, for a change potential, potentially to be permanent. And I say that within the confinements of what Christ is able to do through us, mm. you know, when I say permanent. Mm-hmm. But, it, but it truly does not take an awful lot because if you're in the right headspace and you're feeling the right things and something meets those, it does not take an awful lot to be manipulated, to then have your yes. perception of reality altered for the worse. So protecting ourselves against that is very important. And a lot of that, a lot of that comes down to getting control of your screen use, mm-hmm. quitting porn, stop binge watching, binging, browsing, scrolling, streaming. I mean, it, it, it's, and it's one of those things where like, I know you'll have some people that'll, oh, come on, you know, harp on phones all you want, but it's not that big of a deal. For some people, it's not. For the vast majority of us, most people, like the average screen use, the average screen on time in America is seven hours. Wow. And that's not just seven hours scattered throughout the day. Oftentimes, those are like time blocks. Most people, once they get off work, they go home to unwind, relax. That means scrolling through social media for two, three hours at a time. Often right when they go to bed and right when they wake up. And for those who don't know, we, the, 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 the level that your mind is susceptible at nighttime because it's naturally emitting theta waves, which are, which are what, what we know to be trance waves, theta waves, where your mind is highly suggestible, you should not scroll right before you go to bed. You certainly shouldn't doom scroll or fear porn scroll or real porn scroll or whatever scroll right before you go to bed and right when you wake up. Because that will taint your perception of reality for the next 24 hours. And it might impress upon it for a long time afterward. You should read. You should pray. You should be present with those who are around you in those times. I mean, married couples, married guys, you mean to tell me you're scrolling or watching porn or watching movies when you have the woman that you've committed yourself to next to you? Now, I'm not married. But I want to be married enough that that is like, like, what do you mean you're doing that? So, yeah, reality, man, perception of reality. You have to, you have to protect your ability to perceive reality. And for the Christian, we have to know the irrefutable and undeniable truths of our objective God-created reality, which requires that we read our Bibles and pray and converse with fellow Christians. I'll, I'll even go one step further with that and say that for, for the Christian, we are required to attempt to destroy, if within our own minds, any worldview that would seem to contradict the Bible, right? Meaning, meaning like, what is, what is the foundation within my own mind that I am holding up that could be in opposition to the teachings of the gospel. A good, a really good one that I've been talking a lot about is science. And so um, <laughs> science is a big one because science is like the false God of our, of one of them anyway. Right. And right. it's like, okay, so science, even not even the science, just science, science is pretty confident that dead men don't rise. <laughs> right? right? Meanwhile, Bible, the gospel is pretty confident that they can and they did, <laughs> right? 
quite so, a few of them actually. <laughs> that's right. That's right. And and f- and many more, right? Yeah. yeah right. Amen. So so within our own minds, this is this is this is why like I really like uh young earth six day creationism because it makes the little scientist in my head so mad. <laughs> it's like you can't possibly believe that. I'm like, deal with it. I believe that. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, because I have to take those thoughts captive. And that's just one example, right? Like, you know, coming from, um, coming from the inner healing world, you know, when I, when I really took a sledgehammer to the ideas that I had about like some of the stuff that Carl Jung talked about, and I never like really dug deep into the dude's, you know, theology, right? It's always one essentially, but you know, you look at the stuff like Jordan Peterson, Jordan Peterson's a died in the wool Jungian, you know what I mean? Jonathan Pajot as well. Like these ideas are out there, you know, coming from, coming from a lot of men's inner healing work as well. Mm-hmm. So having to go inside my own mind and like, okay, here's the, here's a worldview that I have that, that I would even say for a while was of, was of some benefit to me. Well, let me smash that idol, you right. know? And that, and that's the thing is that's what we're, that's what we're called to do because for the very reason that you just said that we're taking in so many influences all the time through screens, through media. And that has been the case for 150 years, mm-hmm. right? Right, right. Since people, you know, we had mass literacy, right? Where you had people suddenly beginning to take in, you know, fiction books, non-philosophy that were not from a Christian worldview. And then you have, again, you have motion pictures. Music was a huge one, mm. huge one. One of the things that I, I think a lot of people don't really understand why the 1950s psyoped the boomers so powerfully is that in the 1950s, media consumption became private because you could watch TV. You could listen to music in your, in your record player in your room right? It wasn't, it wasn't public consumption of media anymore. It was private consumption. So private consumption enabled secret consumption. And then your, your, your media habits are no longer being monitored by, you know, the people that you're around. You're not going to concert halls anymore, you know, in the, in the same way you're going, you're, you're listening to, to a record player, right? Mm-hmm. You're not, you know, you're watching, you're watching TV, et cetera, which is very different from like, I'm going to go watch a movie in a, in a big theater full of hundreds of people. It essentially become, became private. And that mass media programming started in earnest in the 1950s. All these different worldviews, all these different ideas, so many that it's almost impossible to name them all. Secularism being one of them, liberalism being another one, globalism being another one, environmentalism, feminism. You can stack up all the isms that we've all been drowning in. And it's like you have to one by one take the sledgehammer of the gospel to each one and smash mm-hmm. them all. And when you smash them all, all the idols that we all have been forcibly inserted into our minds and the higher education, the public school system, name it. You know what I mean? Vaccines oh, yeah. are a big one, right? Smashing all these idols. What happens when you smash those idols? Well, I don't think the idols themselves have pull over people, though sometimes they do. I think what really tugs on people is if I smash this idol, I'm going to lose all my friends and family because all my friends and family worship mm-hmm. this idol too. That I think is, mm-hmm. is in many ways. And secret sin, you know, me worshiping this idol allows me to have this secret sin that God the Father would not allow me to have. So I'm going to secretly worship this idol because he says it's okay. 
So you'll, the, the revelation, the need to confess secret sin, and then losing friends and family or social relationships or jobs helps preserve those idols within us. But we have to, we have to smash them all if we're going to be mm-hmm. free to the degree that I think you and I are talking about. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes, I 100% agree. And what you proposed with the real allure, which then means the real danger of these idols is the weight and the, well, it's, it's the appeal to emotion. It is the, what does it make me feel? And what can I continue to feel? So with, if I reject this idol and pick your poison, pick your idol, I lose these relationships. It's, that's the emotion, that there's the emotion there. If I abstain from this secret sin, I will no longer be able to feel what I would like to feel, or I will no Mm. longer be able to feel the thing that I'm turning to this thing to feel. Now, much of the remedy for Christians, or I I guess I'll say the spiritual remedy, because that's the thing that's interesting about this discussion, is the spiritual side of things which is the real side of things, but then we're still in this world side of things. So like emotional tools and the utilization of those, but from the spiritual side to smash your personal idol is to trust in God's fulfillment. And it is not because we can conceive trusting as in action but I have been challenged on that because recently I was at my at a men, one of my men's Bible studies. You know, the topic of most of us are are single, and some of us, some of them out there are married. The topic of relationships come up a lot, and I have for the longest time, not to imply that I don't now, still do, but for the longest time, have wanted to get married and have kids. Mm-hmm. And in a journaling session. Instead of beating around the bush or being dishonest or not calling it what it was, I just outright admitted in my personal time with God, and it has since changed, but I'll say it as I said it then, or it's, it's grown, I should say. It's not completely changed. It's grown. The Lord is working, was I don't trust God with relationships. Mm. And this, this actually piggybacks off of one of the things that we talked about on our last podcast was the importance of coming to God where you're at and the honesty that we have in our communication with God. Because he's not this big, scary, he's not going to wage war against us. The same Old Testament God that wages war against sin continues to wage war against sin. Well, he's actually won the war. Amen. Hallelujah. Praise Mm. Jesus. But it's it's this, this God who gets it, who made himself flesh, who made himself man. Anyways, at Bible study, you know, I remember I'd tell the guys like, yeah, I'm just, I, I don't trust God with this. And what that enabled was the very real opportunity for me to finally let go of some thing, some notion, some idea, some feeling that I so badly wanted to have control over. And in admitting that I didn't trust God, it opened the door for honest and clear communication between 
a father and a son, mm. which must take place for any kind of change, any kind of transformation, any kind of work. And when I say work, I don't mean our work. I mean the work of the Holy Spirit to take place. Mm. Something of that nature has to happen. So in communicating that and in being open and honest with that, I have found in this short period of time a much deeper progression and solidification of my trust in God in that area. I may not say that I 100% trust. It's a work in progress. By the time mm -hmm. we do episode three, <laughs> we'll have the answer for sure. The audience will. You'll get it when I know it. But at this point in time, that something has happened. A very real transformation, a very real thing is happening. And and, and, and I'll tell you, Will, it's not because I'm taking some kind of action to trust. I think perhaps in its simplest form, it could be the decision to trust more, but I don't know that that's it. But I know in my being, in my the, the peace that accompanies it, that I trust more than I did. And it's not because I'm consciously exercising to trust God more. I just am, which doesn't make sense to the conscious mind, which doesn't make sense to the old man, which doesn't make sense to flesh. But to my spirit, to the Holy Spirit in me, that's what it is. And I was reading, we're going through this book called Sit, Walk, Stand by Watchman Nee. Hmm. And one of the one of the things, actually, I'm just going to grab it. Yeah, go for it. It's, it's actually pretty crazy but it goes right along with this. So it goes as follows. An engineer living in a large city in the West left his homeland for the Far East. He was away for two or three years, and during his absence, his wife was unfaithful to him and went off with one of his best friends. Mm -hmm. On his return home, he found he had lost his wife, his two children, and his best friend. At the close of a meeting which I was addressing, this grief-stricken man unburdened himself to me. Day and night for two solid years, my heart has been full of hatred, he said. I am a Christian, and I know I ought to forgive my wife and my friend, but though I try and try to forgive them, I simply cannot. Every day I resolve to love them, and every day I fail. What can I do about it? And watchmen knees response may surprise you. He says, do nothing at all. Then the man asks, what do you mean? Am I to continue to hate them? So Watchman Nee explained, the solution of your problem lies here, that when Lord Jesus died on the cross, he not only bore your sins away, but he bore you away too. When he was crucified, your old man was crucified in him, so that unforgiving you, who simply cannot love those who have wronged you, has been taken right out of the way in his death. God has dealt with the whole situation in the cross, and there is nothing left for you to deal with. Just say to him, Lord, I cannot love, and I give up trying, but I count on thy perfect love. I cannot forgive, but I trust thee to forgive instead of me and to do so henceforth in me. The man sat there amazed and said, that's all so new. 
I feel I must do something about it. Then a moment later, he added again, but what can I do? God is waiting till you cease to do, Watchman said. When you cease doing, then God will begin. Have you ever tried to save a drowning man? The trouble is that his fear prevents him from trusting himself to you. When that is so, there are just two ways of going about it. Either you must knock him unconscious and then drag him to the shore, or else you must leave him to struggle and shout until his strength gives away before you go to his rescue. If you try to save him while he has any strength left, he will clutch at you in his terror and drag you under, and both he and you will be lost. God is waiting for your store of strength to be utterly exhausted before he can deliver you. Once you have ceased to struggle, he will do everything. God is waiting for you to despair. My engineer friend jumped up. Brother, he said, I've seen it. Praise God. It's all right now with me. There's nothing for me to do. He has done it all. And with radiant face, he went off rejoicing. So the tie-in there, if not obvious, is in my God, I can't trust you. It turns out I don't have to do the trusting. (laughs) And in God, Christ, the Holy Spirit doing what they do best, I trust more. And it has been evident to myself in a number of different ways. I didn't do anything. I didn't have to do anything. Quite frankly, I don't know what I would have done. And I don't know what this engineer guy would have had to have done either. Yeah, man. It's beginning to look a lot like Christmas. Well, everywhere except Phoenix, where it's still like 90 degrees. However, elsewhere in America, it's cooling down, the leaves are turning colors, girls are ordering their pumpkin spice whatevers, and you're probably thinking about what you're going to ask Santa to put under the tree this year. And since all my listeners are on his nice list and will get everything they want wrapped up in a little bow, I have a suggestion. How about coffee? This is something you'll probably use every day, unlike that holiday sweater. It's delicious, unlike a new pair of socks. It makes you feel great, unlike a fruitcake. And especially, it's the gift that keeps on giving. Because you can go to ReformationCoffee.com and not just order coffee, but subscribe to it weekly, bi-weekly, or even monthly. That's right, you can get coffee delivered to you even when it's cold in Phoenix or hot wherever you are and every day in between. And with Reformation Coffee, you can choose from Ethiopia, India, Brazil, and Guatemala roasts. And it's never cold in those places. Plus, I have it on good authority that Reformation may be experimenting with a new top-secret blend. I could tell you, but then Brandon would have to kill me, and that would put him on the naughty list, and we can't have that now, can we? So instead, I'll just drop hints and say that this new project that he's working on might require me getting a whole new set of coffee gear for season two of Will Reforms His Coffee. Pretty exciting, huh? You can be a part of this by going to ReformationCoffee.com and ordering several bags of coffee for you, your friends, your family, your wife, your kids, your neighbors, and your coworkers. Heck, even the mailman. Brandon will roast them up for you in three days and ship them right away. And even though Santa isn't Christian, Reformation Coffee is, so you can knock two icicles down with one stone and celebrate the holidays while glorifying God and helping a good man provide for his family. I think that's a win-win. So again, go to ReformationCoffee.com right now and start your holiday shopping. 
And when you sign up for a regular coffee subscription, use the code SUBFREE to get one free 12-ounce bag on the Ho 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 House. Yes, I had to. Happy sipping, friends. Yeah, I mean, it's it's uh, getting into that place. Well, we want to have some ownership, right? Like, I, I don't know that I've talked about this so much on the podcast. I've talked, I've spoken to a lot of people about it privately. But um, one of the things that I had struggled with until very recently was uh, I had insomnia for three years. So it wasn't the sort of insomnia where um, where I couldn't fall asleep. I could fall asleep fine, but I, I couldn't stay asleep. So um, so I uh, I would sleep for about six hours and I would just be up. But I'm very much a I'm very much a seven or eight hour kind of sleeper guy. So for literally three years, basically since I moved into this apartment, I was I was dealing with insomnia. So everything that I built, everything I did was on was on limited sleep. And it was it was awful. It was it was and I, sleep had never been anything that I'd struggled with before in my life. Sleep was actually maybe I slept too much at previous moments of my life, so it was very unfamiliar for me to suddenly not be able mm. to sleep. And then it. It, uh, I managed to kind of sort of manage with it leading into July of this past year, right? Like I had tried, I can't even tell you the number of gadgets and, you know, and, and over-the-counter pills and stuff that I've tried, you know, just like all kinds of, all, I should do a Twitter thread about it, the stuff that I actually got value out of. But ultimately, starting in July, uh, early July, just after the 4th of July weekend, things got really worse all of a sudden. So rather than, you know, sleeping for like seven hours, I started not being able to fall asleep or only sleeping for two hours. Like I had reached, oh, I had reached the end of myself. It was really bad. I had finally reached the end of myself. And that was when, that was when I cried out to God for help. Like I was, I was just praying in tears, like God help me with this. Cause I can't do it anymore. I can't buy any more gadgets. I can't do any more things. Like it's just, it's not working. Everything that I thought to try to do in my own strength has now failed. And I was, mm-hmm. I was in, I was in despair because I couldn't, I just couldn't pull my head together, you know, and, and sleep is so important, especially because when you, when you don't sleep well, then uh, the way that the circadian rhythms end up working is that it, it, it ended up pushing me later and later into staying up at night once my brain started to get rolling. And so then, then I started becoming like my brain would switch on at like 10, 11 o'clock at night and I could finally get work done, which means that I'm staying up until like three in the morning when I should be going to bed. And then it becomes this self-reinforcing spiral. So I was, I was finding things going in that direction and I just cried out in despair for, for help with this. And then within, within weeks, as in within, within literally within three weeks, uh, due to a series of circumstances that were so far out of my control, the problem was solved. Like I had reached and, and, and not a moment too soon. And in all these other ways that, that, um, that tied a bunch of threads together and introduced me to people and individuals and situations that suddenly that I was the person who could have the right influence in, right. To show up and, and participate. I don't mm-hmm. want to, I can't give away, you know, information, but, um, mm-hmm. but just to say that like, wait a minute, like I couldn't sleep for three years. I finally reached the end of my rope. I cried out and I was introduced to the right person at the right time. I couldn't have been introduced to this person at any point earlier. It had to be now. <laughs> right. And now here I am walking into the middle of a situation that I can help sort out for the first time in years, mm-hmm. the way to feel all the things come together. And it was literally, as you said, 
I had reached the end of myself, right? And I can go pretty far. <laughs> right? Oh, yeah. Right? I had reached the end of myself. And it was in that moment that I cried out and, and I was delivered from it. And it hasn't been a problem since. It just went away. Something that I thought like, I guess I'm gonna have to deal with this for the rest of my life. It, now, it's, now it's gone. It's not something that I worry about anymore. And my sleep has been restored and it's healthier than it's ever been. Exactly like you say, like, okay, when you're done fighting, I'll be there for you. It's like, yes, Lord. <laughs> yeah. Amen, man. That's amazing. So, something about this God we serve. Something. <laughs> uh, man, it's, yeah, it's, 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 it's so, it, it, the, the absolvement of my want to exercise my will in fewer and fewer places and the peace in letting go of my want for control has not belittled me in such a way that I feel less than. Mm. Instead, it has empowered me and filled me with something greater than myself that letting go of control or willpower or something that I feel as though I have to hold on to for my own sanity or for my own wholeness that I am made whole. And what once was a struggle because of things that I presupposed, what if this, what if that, you know, what if I use this as justification to sin? It has been completely the opposite where I have experienced so much more peace, which has done my body so much good because one of the things that I've struggled with over the last few years has been this this chronic adrenal fatigue, which in part came from what could have been abusing both marijuana and different isomers. Stay away from Delta 8, you guys. Not good for you. Abusing nicotine and what also could have in part been because of long COVID and I'm hesitant to say that because COVID is gay, which I 100% believe. Um, but also stress. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but stress. And like I mentioned, you know, the stress of being canceled, which I repressed with substances, then came upon me a year and a half later after I stopped with a vicious comeback has had ramifications on my body. So I've dealt with low testosterone, digestion issues, low energy levels, my own circadian rhythm being a little messed up and just things that have completely exhausted me and just and changed my quality of life where there are things that I'm doing to pursue a, a, a fix in my biology. Like I have since found a natural doctor who is also a Christian and who has helped people that have gone through the exact things that I've gone through to experience healing but the peace that has come with those things that I mentioned prior, letting go of my want for control, thinking that I'm somehow less than or, or I'm not experiencing the proper human experience because of what this these implications are. The peace has done my body so much good through that process because so much of it is stress. So mm -hmm. much of what ails us is stress. And you can experience, and this, you know, again, I'll tie this in with some, with some screen talk here, is if you're constantly stressed, you must find a way to cope with it. For many people in modern 
America, especially modern, well, really all over the world, but it's our screens that we're using to cope, to fix, to soothe, and to numb, along with actual substances and behaviors. Alcohol, marijuana, casual sex, meaningless relationships, the Mm. pursuit of money to be the fix to all these things. Tons of things plague us. The most common, the most not talked about, going to be screens, because how else are they going to manipulate our perception of reality? Screens. Anyways, because it's not me, accepting that means that it does not diminish my human experience because I am a real man interacting and living in a real world where I have a completely unique experience and all of its wholeness and all of its entirety. But these things being a work of God does not take anything away from that. It adds to it in so many ways, so many ways. Now, at no point in time do I ever want to imply that I don't struggle with anything. And I don't think any honest Christian is ever going to to imply that, oh, the Lord took away all my afflictions because I wish I knew the exact reference, but he who says he does not sin has made God out to be a liar. So that just simply is not true. Yet these things are all work of the Holy Spirit, all work of God, but in no way, shape, or form am I claiming that to be something that it's not in my human experience, but what it is in my human experience is a richness, a fullness, a sense of completedness, a peace that permeates every fiber of my being, a a groundedness and a presentness that keeps me in this moment, a type of don't worry about tomorrow because today has its uh, own worries and those worries can be cast at the foot of the cross. My relationships. Turns out when when God is your center, your relationships benefit in so many ways, so many ways. And like, yeah, I'm still dealing with health stuff. I just started pursuing remedies for it. I, I, my testosterone is low. Uh, my sleep is not the greatest. My digestion is giving me issues. But compared to where it was, even in the recent past, especially in the months prior, beginning of the year, with with the advent of this christian progression the peace that has come with it to say i feel like a new man would be very appropriate that's kind of the whole point (laughs) funny how that works amazing does what it says on the box yeah it's almost as if that old book knows what it's talking about but i think the i think the thing that people will might be surprised to hear is that they hear i'm a new man but they have very specific connotations of what that means. They don't think of it in terms of I've become a new creation in terms of ways that are also important to me, right? Because you get you get people who they evangelize the gospel and they say, I'm a, I'm new creation. I'm free from sin, whatever it might be like alcoholism, or I'm free from you know, free from infidelity or the kind of things that people say when they, when they give their, when they give their testimony, truly being delivered from grievous crimes, sins that everyone would agree are sins. Mm -hmm. But like what you don't hear as much about, and I think is as important is the benefits of, like you said, reduced stress, reduced anxiety, 
more well-being, peace of mind that makes me freed up to surface the best parts of my personality as God made me, right? Because he made us, he made us with our unique personalities or our personas or the things that make us uniquely ourselves, that those innate gifts that he gave us can shine so much more freely by being removed from the existential anxiety of death, of worry, that everything Mm. will be taken care of. That doesn't necessarily mean that it'll be easy, right? Because obedience is not necessarily easy. You mentioned, you know, having to trust in terms of like finding a relationship. Now that process Mm. of trusting God until that woman comes along, that may not necessarily be easy for you, but it's way easier than thinking I have to do it all myself. I have to be on all the dating apps and I have to go and I have to be, you know, you know, banging the bushes to get the network going and all this stuff. Like the, the, the discipline of obedience and trust and faith is ultimately easier than trying to do it ourselves. Right. And that say the energy that we save in not having to fight the world can be channeled into simple ease in our own skin as men and uh, and as women too. And that has effects that are so far beyond what I think most people hear about when they're when they're offered the Christian promise, right? Mm-hmm. Like, oh, you know, I got I got saved and I'm not an alcoholic anymore. Like, or I got saved and I was in prison. I was in prison for, you know, terrible crimes and I got saved and now I'm free, I'm free of all that. Like, yes, mm-hmm. amen and hallelujah. But I think there's such so many more everyday grounded benefits to it made Mm -hmm. strong in very vital and important ways for what it means to simply be a man or a human being that don't get talked about, but Mm -hmm. that is as important a benefit because they change the way that we move through life. They change what we're able to Mm -hmm. bring, particularly as like, as, as men who work like you and I work in relationship with others, meaning through conversation, right? That to be able to bring more parts of myself online to serve more men makes a huge difference in all aspects of my life. And mm-hmm. no one told me about that. Like you become more you, <laughs> right? You become you and all the things about yourself that you are like, I'll, I'll, I'll speak for myself. All the things about myself that I already valued are finding their truest expression. Now I I've cared about theology since I was eight years old, when I was began asking questions about the nature of reality, looking into Bigfoot and the Loch Ness Monster and UFOs and reading all of those books in my school library when I was like eight is when that started. And so it's, it's grown and progressed and evolved since then over the past you know 30 some years. But now that same set of interests that I have is now being applied to the systematic theology of the Bible and it's so much more fulfilling than anything I ever had previously looked into. It's more solid. It's more real, et cetera. And so I didn't lose the gift of the interests as God made me. They, f- they are found their fullest expression. I didn't mm-hmm. lose the desire to work one-on-one with men to have them improve their lives. Even before I went traveling, I wanted to be a psychotherapist. That's the direction I thought I was going in. But now with an objective standard outside myself that I can point to, I'm not speaking in my own authority about men and women. I'm speaking in God's authority, right? Mm -hmm. And here it is that's already already written. Let me show you what's already there. That brings such a great peace to it as well. And so these are examples of like, yes, being delivered from, from grievous sin, potentially even criminal sin is a huge deal. And I don't want to underestimate it. 
But the promise of the gospel, the promise of salvation, the promise of sanctification and regeneration is so much more real in terms of the everyday improvements of our lives, right? Which, which we're, we're, would be tempted to dismiss as trivial. We're spending our everyday lives in these everyday moments. And so if the gospel doesn't reach into those everyday moments, are you really getting the full benefit of it? Mm-hmm. And in my experience, no, because it has to make it into every interaction, has to make it into every meal. I pray over every meal now. I've become the kind of Christian I warned myself about, <laughs> <laughs> right? And yet it should be there because a meal sitting alone here in my apartment is still part of my everyday life. And it reaches in there and it makes the food better. It makes the process of eating better. Mm-hmm. It makes me it makes me grateful. And people mm-hmm. don't talk about these things. And I, I feel like they should because it mm-hmm. can be that simple. It can be that beautiful. It can be that meaningful in the lowercase m sense, which makes up 99% of our lives versus the big peak experience sense. Mm-hmm. I think some of it is the Christian transformation is not just the absolvement of the want to sin or indulge the flesh, nor is it only the freedom from captivity in sin, which is things being taken away. And we all know how we feel about things being taken away. Mm -hmm. But we are given something, which is the true essence of Christianity is we are given something. Mm -hmm. We are given grace. We are given mercy. We are given salvation. That there is nothing we could do to warrant it, not once in a million years. So it's not just these things are taken away from us, and there are things that are taken away from us. That which is not of God will be purged and burned out of us, you know, purified Mm. like silver is. But we're given something. We're not, and, and we're given salvation. We're given forgiveness. Our debts are paid. We're given the Holy Spirit as a helper and an aid. We're given the the very real strength of Christ in our beings and our essence. And we're given companionship and a relationship with the Creator of the universe. And then perhaps what holds. Christians and non-Christians alike away from finding meaning in these smaller things is other religions propose it as enlightenment, which is obtained by detachment, which mm-hmm. in theory, if I could perfectly detach myself from anything and everything, I would be perfect, but I don't know how to do that. And I don't think those who claim they know how to do it know how to do it because they don't have anyone that's actually done it. Mm -hmm. Because that's not what Christianity is. We're not the only, I mean, we're, we're being detached, but we're being detached from things that are not us. First Mm -hmm. and foremost, we're made in the image and likeness of God, the father. This isn't my, this, this is, I'm a reflection of God. You're a reflection of God. Every other person is a reflection of God. So it's not that we're, just getting rid of, just detaching. We're given a richness, a meaningfulness that's all encompassing. But what it what it what it is too is it's a it's a continual process. Again, we come back to sanctification. It doesn't all just happen 
in the moment that you accept Christ as your Lord and Savior. It doesn't all just happen in the moment that you get baptized or that you take communion or whatever. That can be part of it. Those can be very real. I mean, with, with the exception of with the exception of accepting Christ as your Lord and Savior, where that is the literal catalyst. Those other things can act as catalysts for the transformation because it's God's timetable of your sanctification. You go through a continual process where you experience a certain richness of life unfold that we get to enjoy. In others of other religion, other worldviews, they don't get to enjoy. Because if the perception of, let's say, you know, in, in modern in our modern society, the, there could be an enormous hindrance for men to take on Christianity because they'd rather go out and sleep with random women. Mm-hmm. I don't lose anything by abstaining from that. And I also, but then I, but I don't, so, so I don't lose anything by abstaining from that, by being a Christian, but it's, it's also, it's cause, cause it's not just because the Bible says so. And this is where I think you get into like different degrees of Christianity where you have those who do what they do because, you know, like if we, if we, if we piggyback back to, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. You have plenty of people who will keep the commandments because they don't want to go to hell. Right. Which is a great starting point. Great starting point. But then you have, but we, but through this process of sanctification, we should graduate from that. I'm going to do the right thing because I don't want to get punished. I'm going to, I'm going to not sleep with women because that's what I'm told to do. It's when it starts to become personable to us, but then it's also when, you know, like for me, the, the stage, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. It's not that I keep the commandments because I've been commanded to keep the commandments. And it's really not me keeping the commandments, regardless of which degree I fall on here. But it's that because I'm so thankful and grateful for what has been given to me, a renewal has taken place where what God once prescribed in the law has become the earnest and honest desires of my heart. Mm-hmm. And to some people, well, there there are things that have to be crucified right. that will go away. The old man will be taken off, but in its place is something so much better, so much richer, with so much more meaning, whether it directly and immediately reminds you of God or you get to just enjoy it in that moment for it being a human experience where it doesn't immediately ring to any biblical truths or anything of God. Like, man, this is a really good cheeseburger. (laughs) (laughs) And then later you go, oh yeah, that's right. God provided me with that cheeseburger. Yeah. It takes over. The perspective takes over. Right. And and I don't know, I don't know how it could take over from a, from a perspective that had any amount of works at all. Right. If you, if I felt that I had to do something, right? If I ha- if I felt that I had to to actively participate in some way, right? In the sense of in the sense of like, oh well, I better perform in the following way, or I'll lose my salvation. Like I I I don't know what I don't know what that would do to me. That would probably all the peace that I have from it would probably go away. It's like oh oh, I better keep up. I better keep up with God. Right. Like (laughs) instead of, instead of like, it is sufficient to surrender. I don't know if you can consider surrender a doing. 
to think about that one. But um, to be like, well, you know, well, yes, God does his part, but you know, you got to do your part. It's like, really? What's, what's my part? <laughs> right? Like, I don't, will I ever be able, will I ever be able to, to fully do my part? Well, no, of course not. You can't possibly keep the whole law. Right. Mm-hmm. And so in this is where you get, in this is where you get a lot of different people who start promoting gospels that, that have some amount of human based works where grace, grace can't stand alone because it's so confronting. It's so confronting to imagine like, yeah, you, it ain't you, bud. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. It, it ain't you. It's, it's all God. It's all God all the way, all the way down and all the way and all the way back up. And that in that freedom, you can find true peace, true relationship, the true picture of God, where I remove myself from the picture entirely. And this is where you get people saying, all glory to God, praise God, you know, and, and it, like, there's a way to do that in a, in a cheap, you know, for lack of a better word, Christianese kind of way. But then there's a really sincere way of saying it, which is, which is very much like, yeah, no, I ain't a self-made man. I'm a God-made man. Right. And really, mm-hmm. and really mean that. And the, and the, and again, as we've been talking about, like, it may sound like it creates a paradoxical sense of freedom. Like if you truly felt that free, why wouldn't you sin? Because I'm free from that. <laughs> that's the, that's the freedom that that's what I'm free from, you know, being a slave to sin. And I got to explain this to somebody, somebody else recently about how, cause we, we were talking, it was the same friend that I left the, that left the 30 minutes of voice notes to. This was during the 20 minutes. It's like, there's no such thing as free will. Like free, like, well, you know, what about free will? It's like, we don't actually have free will. It's a, it's a, it's a mistake because yes, of course, I feel myself as having the ability to execute independent agency, whether I'm going to pick up this pen or that pen. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. That's sure. If you want to call that free will, but when it comes to our moral choices, which are the only choices that have any significance, moral choices are the ones that determine, so to speak, the, the trajectory of our eternal soul. So our moral, so choosing which pen right now to pick up is not a moral choice, right? It's just a, maybe you can call it a wisdom choice or just a random choice, whatever. The moral choices that we make, those are the ones that have real significance. And when it comes to our moral choices, you are either a slave to sin or you are a slave to Christ, one or the Mm -hmm. other. You do not have free will. You do not have free will in the way that you conceptualize it because only God has totally free will. So we will, we will choose either to serve God or serve not God. But truthfully, the service, like service, slavery to sin is true bondage. It's true, true bondage. And to be released from that, to be released from that slavery to sin, to hate sin, I don't want to have anything to do with it. Instead, I'm going to serve God. Serving God is real freedom. And the, Mm -hmm. the world says serving sin is freedom. And you can see how it's kind of, how it's inverted. So who are you going to serve, right? Only, only one form of services is real freedom. And that's the thing that I think is hard for people to understand is that like, no, 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 like you are truly liberated to pursue, to pursue the good. Stop Mm -hmm. relying, stop relying on your own strength. Mm -hmm. Simply allow yourself to be sanctified and confess. One of the things that I, that I tell a lot of people also is I stress the importance of confession, but confession not to a priest. If you wrong somebody, go confess to the person 
and I guarantee you won't do it again, <laughs> right? Like that oh, confession. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Because that confession to the person that you've wronged and having to seek their forgiveness is mm-hmm. true humility. It can be mm-hmm. crushing depending on what you've discovered that you've done, oh, right? Yeah. Like, you know, like one of the, like with Tim Regal, you know, who was on two, three weeks ago, you know, he like the, the amount of confession that he had to do to his wife, you know, for the things that he had done or so many other men. It's like, look, if you committed a wrong in your past, go and confess that sin. And the process of asking for forgiveness means that you're not going to want to ask for that again. And that's what mm-hmm. drives, that's what drives the lesson in, right? Like all of these things together produce in us individuals that can operate in the state of freedom from sin because we've learned we've we've learned our lesson if we didn't already know it like if you didn't already know don't do that thing but if you absolutely need to put your hand on the stove yeah by all means go ahead (laughs) you know you're gonna you're gonna feel the you're gonna feel the impact of that Mm -hmm. and it almost sounds like this kind of freedom sounds kind of silly to say it out loud except the experience of it is is very very real and mm-hmm. I can't, I can't, and having explored the world's religions, which outside of Christianity truly do promise various forms of works-based salvation, whether through meditation, right, or all kinds of like practices like ayahuasca, et cetera, like, no, no, like just keep doing this thing and you'll become enlightened or you'll become free, works-based salvation. Outside, like, Christianity promises none of that, which is why it's so, which is why so it's so confronting to so many people. Mm-hmm. Like, what do you mean? I don't right. have to, I don't have to do the practice. Like, no, you don't have to do the practice. Mm-hmm. You re- you really, really don't. You know, when sanctification takes hold, when you feel that wind in your sails, it's a completely different, mm-hmm. it's a completely different thing. But by the world standards, it sounds almost impossible for it to be mm-hmm. real. Yeah. It's, it, well, it, I, I think it, it requires, it requires something to be understood in a way that is not just understood, but is felt. And this is where in my professional line of work, which enters in the more perhaps secular lens, but is it because it's because what it is, or what I best understand it to be where these conversations become really productive is you have a conscious mind, our logic, our analysis, our processing, a lot of our anxiety comes from the conscious mind. And then you have the subconscious mind, which is in its simplest form, the domain of emotion. And it's also our autopilot, our programming, and these other things. Different schools of thought think that the subconscious mind is in control. And I say in control loosely also with the context of the other two and a half hours we've been discussing but it's in control of 97% of our happenings as people, our, I guess our human experience. And then the conscious mind is the other 3%. The conscious mind, because we're consciously engaged with it, wants these things to be actions, wants these things to be works mm. or deeds, the pursuit of enlightenment. The subconscious mind only mm. needs to accept it only needs to accept because the conscious mind goes, I want to feel this way. So let's do this thing. Now I feel that way. The subconscious mind goes, I want to feel this way. Okay, now I feel this way. So I work with clients in the subconscious mind because the conscious mind is what exercises our will or our willpower. Mm -hmm. And when there are things that are good and right for a man 
to pursue quitting porn, getting off of obsessive screen use, mastering your time, becoming more grounded and present. You don't have to exercise your will to become those things. There are levers that can be pulled, moved, communicated, reasoned with, but I say reasoned with because that's what the conscious mind wants to hear. Subconscious doesn't need reason. It needs a map. It needs guidance. It needs a story to be told to then accept, to instead do, or instead of doing, to go, ah, and then it just, well, it just happened, which (laughs) I have learned through the lens of, and I'm going to, I'm going to say the word. (laughs) I've learned through the lens of hypnosis, interestingly enough, oddly enough, shocker. Oh my goodness. Oh no. And many people have many different responses when they hear that word because it's at best a stage trick, at worst occult mysticism. But what it, what I know it to be, my definition of it, when we just work with my definition of it, because because we've discussed this before, I have a, yeah. a much more broad, all-encompassing definition. But I'll, I'll use the word hypnosis only because... That's the technical definition under which I learned the differentiation between the conscious mind and the subconscious mind. Because it works for things to be accepted, which is really interesting when you consider the Christian walk is entirely dependent on accepting something. And once it was communicated to me in through the lens of hypnosis, something then clicked for my Christian faith to accept things that I had struggled for a long time to accept because I knew this quote-unquote deeper part of me, the subconscious mind, only had to accept. But it was also proposed with the simplicity of it is just accepting. Now, in 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 the work that I do with my private clients, I'm helping people through generalizations, deletions, or distortions from their own world map, their point of reference, their experience of the world, that then would make it difficult for them to accept certain things. Mm. But it's a sim- in its simplest form, you just accept. In Christianity, in its simplest form, which is its truest form, and really it's its only form that should be celebrated, is you just accept. Because you just mm-hmm. accept. So I, I had this, you know, this this whole where it's like, oh, I learned this through hypnosis. But and I say that again, I use that word, and I we'll, we'll take it apart in a second. Yeah, we'll 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 dissect the word, but I use that word, and it and that was one of the things in my in, in throughout this year that has led me to even have the conversation that just happened over the last two and a half hours about this whole accepting what Christ has given, the works of the Holy Spirit, this whole notion of do we really Hmm. have free will and all these other things? That was because what it was is in its own sense, it was the conscious appeasement where my conscious mind, like it clicked, but then it became the tool that has helped me use the part of myself that is then been able to accept these deeper truths. Now, all of this can be spared by it being a work of the Holy spirit, which is what it is. But then that's where you have these, you have like, the, the uniquely spiritual side of our existence with our emotional side and our physical side and our mental side, which God is in all of those, where things will be used to reveal 
truths to us about God that may not first be found in the word of God, but will then be verified in the word of God. Because you're not going to read the word hypnosis in the Bible, but you will read about a certain man who had an awful lot of stories to tell. So you bring up you bring up a series of topics that I've been um, thinking about a lot. I think it's it's undoubtable that the subconscious mind is a real thing, right? Like where where did when I learned how to ride a bike, where did that knowledge go? Right? It's not in my conscious mind. So we can say that it's a, that it's a real thing. I was also talking to somebody yesterday talking about um, he was he's a Christian man who um, was. Uh, questioning the idea that when it comes to behavioral change in our lives, change of our, our minds and addressing subjects we'll broadly call trauma, that we can look, can or should look to childhood. And I had said that, um, in, I think it's in Proverbs, um, train up a child when he is young and when he, in the ways when he is young and when he is old, he will not depart from it. And the way that I use that verse was to show that like the, the way the verse is typically used is if you train a child in righteousness, he will not cease to be righteous when he's older. That's, mm-hmm. I think that's the, that is the uh, surface meaning of it. But the thing is, you can train a child in wickedness in the same way. And children are constantly being trained by their parents one way or another. You are being trained by your parents' active intervention. You are being trained by their neglect. You're being trained by their, uh, by their conscious behaviors. You're being trained by their unconscious behaviors, right? And so you can see their model in scripture that we do absorb like a sponge when we're kids, one way or another, mm-hmm. by conscious intention or not, and that that guides our lives when we get older. And that is something that we're all familiar with. We all, we all know that, right? Like there are certain smells that we have or certain songs or whatever that just take us back to a moment in time in our childhood. That's very, that that's, has emotional charge to us. Mm-hmm. So the question that I've been sitting with and, and I don't, I don't have great answers for it yet. There probably are great answers and I'm looking for them is, okay, so we're talking about the subconscious, which I think we agree is real, mm-hmm. right? Again, where did, when I learned how to ride a bike, where did that knowledge go? Yeah, I don't think about it anymore. And there are tons of examples. When I learned how to type on, you know, on a keyboard, or like when when there's something that I just remember, like a phone number, and then when I can't remember it, right? I don't have it written down. Like it's like that. Like so, there's something there's something about our relationship to a part of our mind that's outside of our conscious awareness that we'll broadly call the subconscious. Okay, how does how does that apply to the soul? Can the subconscious get sanctified? What is it really? Is it, is it, it, it must, it's spiritual in nature. It's not physical. That's what I would think. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, like, I don't have a subconscious part of my brain, but it's right there. Right. <laughs> right? Where, where and does the subconscious lie? Yeah. Right. And so, and so I, I, I sit with all these questions and, and I'm on a, in a, in a process of, of exploring them now because I have I have trouble completely saying that like, well, everything that humanity has learned about the functioning of the mind over the past, say, 100 years needs to all be thrown out. I don't think that's the case. I think that I know what we talked about earlier that Carl Jung believed that in the collective unconscious that we all share one big mind. That needs to be thrown out. That needs to be thrown out. 100% not alluding to 
anything of that. No, no, no. Like this is just my own. Like, oh, yeah. And, and, and Freud, you know, with all of that, that the mind at the deepest level is driven by repressed sexual desires. Like the engine of consciousness is, is I don't believe any of that either. Right. Okay. So like, so what sort of things can we say are true about the mind that fit not just comfortably, but appropriately within scripture? And how do we separate the meat from the bones of that, considering that this, the psychological world is full of absolute scoundrels, right? Like Freud was a scoundrel. Carl Jung was a scoundrel. Those guys fell out. This is a real story of why these two guys fell out is that Freud was offering um, a, a sort of absolution to wealthy industrialists. So people would be very wealthy. They would commit sexual immorality, adultery, and they would go to Freud and he would use his techniques to make them feel absolved of their guilt. Mm-hmm. Right? They but were then, What's that? Both Freud and Jung either were hypnotists or knew of hypnosis. Oh, yeah. So yeah. this is a practical example of it being, because anything can be used for right or wrong by good or bad people. So yeah, continue. Just want to throw that yeah. out. Yeah. Oh, yeah, exactly. And so people would go to Freud and pay him vast sums of money to make them feel better for the things that they had done wrong. The sort of thing that really only repentance from sin can accomplish right. and confession but he was offering his false repentance and false confession and false absolution from sin. Mm-hmm. He trained Carl Jung in that. And Carl Jung became more successful and started making more money doing it. And so they got into a rivalry over it. And that's why they ultimately fell out is that the student surpassed the teacher in terms of his money-making ability. They were both running the scam at very high levels, right? That's true. And then you throw in Wilhelm Reich into the whole picture, you know, where, where he took some of Freud's ideas about libido and applied them to the sexual revolution to liberate society using sex. So like Freud, Jung, Reich, you know, Kinsey, like the, the names of psychology are just, especially in the early days, are full of scoundrels. Absolutely. Right. Okay. So throw that all out with extreme prejudice, <laughs> right? And yes. yet the subconscious is clearly a thing that we all experience. Mm-hmm. So ha- I, this is something that I'm navigating. How mm-hmm. do I how do I relate to these two things from the perspective of wanting to heal men to help them heal for the things that have caused them pain in their past from the from the habits and beliefs that they carry that are not of God? How much of this is appropriate to use? And I don't actually I don't actually know fully. I know the answer is not zero because again I, we as we've said. When I learned how to ride a bike, where did that knowledge go? Something that we can call the subconscious. Cool. Okay. What lives in there? A lot lives in there. Our memories live in there, right? So it's possible to work with the subconscious in a way like, hey, like let's let's breathe really deep and go deep into our memory and find something we may have forgotten. Okay, that's not that's not bad. I'm not taking anything out. It's already in there, right? It's already so I don't I don't actually know, and I don't know that Christianity so far has great answers yet. And so uh, for myself, I'm trying to figure out how do I move very, very carefully in mm-hmm. a way where it's like where I'm holding the word of God up as the single most important shining example of all things. And what will that show me? What will that illuminate for me about the mind? I think that's the way that I'm, that's the way that I'm trying to approach it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
and it's 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 an excellent it's an excellent question to have and to hold and to to both wonder and to explore for these things because you can absolutely manipulate and brainwash someone at a subconscious level to create a gross deviant of what they could and should be. Mm. You can absolutely hijack the subconscious mind to do terrible and horrible things. Yeah. I mean, at the end of the day, and, and, and so I have a, I have a book. It's actually, it's actually just like, they just scanned it and they gave me printer papers for this book, mm. but it's a hypnotist G H Esther Brooks, I think Esther Brooks or something like that, <clears throat> where he was involved in the MK Ultra experiments. Oh dear. <laughs> which essentially was yeah, which essentially was the meeting of hypnotism, which is what the book is called, by the way. Mm. <laughs> and LSD, mind altering substances. Yeah. And What's minimum. You know, what is really interesting? What was it? At minimum, because the MK Ultra was. Oh yeah, at minimum. Yeah, yeah. At minimum. Well, the, the so the fun. In order to brainwash someone, you have to break their body. Mm-hmm. They have to. They have to experience a physical breakdown to truly access someone at their deepest, innermost human parts. Their body has to be effectively destroyed to then access that and do whatever kind of evil, deviant things you'd like to do to it. Yeah, this stuff happened. Like the military, the military and, uni- and American universities well, were deeply yeah. engaged in this research. Is their that a whole, question? their whole idea essentially was what can be done to get a person to commit atrocities mm-hmm. and completely have no idea that they were the ones who did it. That's right, in violation or, of their own moral code. Yes, yes, a complete violation of their own own moral code. So. With with the with the questions and wondering of the subconscious mind, uh, three safeguards come to mind biblically. We're always to engage in prayer. We're all and we're, we're always to engage in prayer. And there is a renewal of the mind that is supposed to take place and will take place. Which, based on the rest of our discussion, is work of the Holy Spirit. Hmm. And then we are told to meditate on those things that are good, true, noble, and righteous and holy. Mm-hmm. So we have we have at least three safeguards when dealing with this less than understood part of the mind, the subconscious mind, which by the way, just so listeners are clear, that the, the term unconscious mind when used by Freud or Jung or all these other people, it, it's 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 synonymous with subconscious mind. The subconscious mind and the unconscious mind are the exact same things. I prefer subconscious because it's more appropriate that it is what is below the conscious mind rather than that it is this thing that's like completely suppressed and not accessible because it's very much so accessible. It's very much so accessible. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's And it's not even that there has to be this because because I attempted reading this the book that book the book hypnotism by you know our MK Ultra guy mm. and so much of what was used to what is what the hypnotist knows to be induce a trance is complicated 
and way more than necessary to than what perhaps the greatest hypnotist that ever lived, Milton H. Erickson, he would accomplish what these other hypnotists tried to do with this gross exaggeration of inducing a trance by telling stories. And oftentimes telling stories of former client successes. Because stories, what's so cool about stories, and when I mentioned earlier that you read these fiction books and it impresses upon your mind an entire reality Mm. that to you feels real, in order to understand a story, you have to conceptualize yourself as partaking in the story. So you then imagine yourself as the main character or a character in the story, which then expands your point of reference. It expands your map and your perception of reality. Because by fantasizing a reality, and when I say fantasize, I know that can have sexual connotations. I mean fantasize to be interchangeable with imagine. So as you imagine yourself through these stories, it becomes part of your map of reality and it becomes part of your real reality. Uh, an example of this that I worked through with one client pertaining to the fear of rejection was he would, his worst, the worst case scenario that he foresaw should he approach woman or anything was that he'd get laughed at and belittled. He never experienced this, but He did experience it through movies depicting that happening, stories showing that happening. And as far as the subconscious is aware, that imagined reality, because before things hit our conscious awareness, they're gate kept by the subconscious mind. All of our senses are processed by a part of our brain that happens not consciously. I'm not consciously aware of the fact that I'm processing these sounds. I'm not consciously aware of the fact that I'm intaking all this light and seeing all these things. And I'm also not consciously aware of all the other things that are happening in my surrounding that would be stimuli. There's this, there's this part of our fearfully and wonderfully made mind that is enabling me to be present and focused on this moment, despite the hundreds of thousands of other things that are going on around you at any given time. But so stories come in where in order to really understand a story, you have to perceive it through your imagination as it happening to you, Mm -hmm. which does not register with the conscious mind. It goes below and reaches the subconscious mind because the story is, it's really an expression of emotion. It's a continued, like you, you enter into some sort of emotional state to really grasp it. And the conscious mind can know of emotion, but it isn't what feels emotion. Emotion is, it's something, it's something more. But so, you know, when it comes to working with the subconscious mind, there are parameters, which is one reason why hypnosis and like hypnotherapy as a profession, you must study it and you must know what you're doing because you can use it for wrong mm-hmm. and you should be careful with it. But perhaps the answer to or to partially answer the question of, you know, how can we use this with that and, you know, take separate the meat from the bone is if it can be used to help people better accept things that will make their life better, especially to help Christians accept things that will make their Christian walk better to get to the point, to help them get to the point where they are then ready to accept what God, what Christ, what the Holy spirit imparts, I believe would be a noble use case. Because because I because I had someone ask, we were talking and he's like, 
because I mentioned it to him in person and then we, we, we connected over a, a Zoom call later and he goes, it, at first it sounded like it was the promise of uh, deliverance without deliverance. Mm-hmm. Yep, I get that. Because you could say that, well, and not even could say, I mean, there are people that have you know, been addicted to cigarettes for 40 plus years that have been able to quit smoking after one to two hypnosis sessions. And by hypnosis session, it truly is just one person communicating and interacting with another person's subconscious mind, which we've been doing this entire time on this conversation. It's not like, it's not like you must induce someone into a trance. And by trance state, I think clarifying that would even be helpful too, because a, a trance state is just any moment where autopilot is present and where like if you're washing the dishes, you can wash the dishes while also having thoughts that have nothing to do with washing the dishes. Driving. You can drive your car and reach your destination while having a conversation with your passenger. Um, and then you have other you know, states of trance like flow state. When you're working on something, you experience time dilation, which is just like you, like I was in a flow state with my business partner, my, my co-strategist, where we were working on website copy for five hours total, and it only felt like 90 minutes, it only felt like two hours. That's a flow state is when the subconscious has been engaged. So you have trance state, which can conjure its own connotations, but it's really no different than like you said, what you, what you brought to the table where, you know, take a few deep breaths and recall some memories that in and of itself is really all anyone has to do to better engage their subconscious mind for a productive therapy type session to get to the root of an issue, which a lot of times is just rooted in, like I said, generalizations, distortions, deletions, and then traumatic memories or experiences. So much of what we encounter in the present moment we encounter it because of unresolved issues from the past. Mm -hmm. And working through and interacting with that is very, very helpful. And, and, and like, like this one guy goes, he's like, it sounds like, you know, you're proposing deliverance without there being real deliverance. Because real deliverance is only and totally a work of the Holy Spirit. Only 100% possible through Christ. <laughs> mm -hmm. That's what I'll, I'll say that on that. We can... <laughs> we'll see what comes up next. Yeah, I mean, I think I think we've I, I think that's a really I think that's a really good critique um, because um, the first set of things that I'll say is that like the self help world, the inherent promise of the self help world, all of it in total, um, is a righteous life without the righteousness of Christ. Like you can have you can have prosperity, fulfillment, you can have. Um, Oh, you know, some of the worst manifestations are pleasure. Like I would even file the pickup world under the self-help world. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, you can go have all the casual, casual encounters you want. But like, ultimately, when you start talking about things like, you know, what do, what do guys like, um, what do guys like uh, Anthony, Anthony Robbins, you know, or even like some, some of the most benign self-help people, right? Like, what are they ultimately promising? Like they don't like not everyone shows up to those worlds. I've been in those rooms, not Anthony Robbins per se, but like, but what people want is a is a prosperous, fulfilled, 
life. And the self-help world promises that you can have those things without the right, without righteousness of Christ. And so ultimately they're materialistic. So you're so in nature, because the, your righteousness is measured by, by your, by your outward manifestation, as opposed to your, your inner redemption. So I think that's a, I think that's a valid critique or a valid perspective to raise. And also what we've already articulated are a whole bunch of everyday experiences that we have of our own minds that indicate there is more to our mind than our conscious awareness. So like driving a car, like, you know, I can, I can drive a car from here to, I don't know, my dad's place or my local cigar bar or to like, or to the grocery store or whatever, and barely even remember the trip, right? Like I'm driving and yet I'm not, I'm not really there. So, so that would be a trance state and the information necessary to get me there and navigate through this con- this complicated physical environment of other cars is entirely being driven by not my conscious mind but but something that is not my conscious mind which we'll call the subconscious and and where my memories are all in there and i can recall memories going as far back as when i was like the, my earliest memory is when i was 3 when i went to the hospital when my sister was born that's my earliest memory i was exact i was mm-hmm. basically exactly 3 years old at that point that's my earliest memory. And that's in there. And then everyday facts, like, gosh, I was just thinking about, I was just thinking about this earlier. What was it? What was it? And I strained to think about it. And then when I stopped trying to think about it, then it pops up automatically. Like everyone's had that experience. You know what I mean? All of these things indicate that there's more to our mind than just our conscious reasoning, rational awareness. And that is true moment to moment of every single of every single day, right? And, and you even mentioned in, in books, like when I read a book, Dune or what a fiction book, and a world is being created in my mind, I'll think about C.S. Lewis, Paralandra. The world of Paralandra is being created in my mind as I read it, and I still have that world in my head. <laughs> it was, it, I can see it. Yeah, I was only reading words on a page, and yet I can see it. I can hear it. What's that? So like there's all these aspects of our mind that are so beyond our ability to understand, but that we live with every single minute of every day as part of our ongoing reality that we can't, that none of us can deny because we all, or deja vu, all this stuff that these common experiences of humanity that we all have, that everyone knows is real. So given that's the case, how can we leverage, can we leverage these aspects of our own mind against, we'll say ourselves to help bring about the life that we desire either to be free of pain or to be pursuing righteous pleasure, right? Like not, not unrighteous pleasure, right? But like um, the kind of pleasure that comes from creating a beautiful work of art. Like I would call that to be a, a pleasurable experience. That's what I'm talking about. It's righteous. So when we liberate ourselves, for example, from anxiety, we have our, our creativity begins to blossom, right? Mm-hmm. So like to what extent is it legitimate to use aspects of our mind against our own mind to produce our own happiness. That's the issue. And I don't know that there's a good answer to that question precisely because what we're talking about is so, can, it can, is so dangerous, if only in terms of our ability to manipulate ourselves, <laughs> right? Right, right. So I don't know. This is why I'm kicking all these ideas around. Yeah. Well, one thing that, one thing that I've found to be really helpful with with learning 
what I have about interacting with communicating with the subconscious is, for example, I'm not as susceptible to peer pressure. Like people cannot, oh, come on, man. Stop being such a pussy. Have one more or whatever it is. That doesn't work on me. Yeah. Because I have, I have a defense in place where I can recognize this is an attempt to, emo- to manipulate my emotions. Because if you can manipulate someone's emotions, then you can get them not to do what you want them to do or inherently go against their own will because I can't, you can't make anyone else do something they don't want to do. Right. But there are certain aspects of this whole, like, you know, MK Ultra, where the whole premise was, how do we do that? And as far as I'm concerned, there are some, there are some <laughs> tinfoil hat things where that's absolutely been the case. Yeah. Where they have figured out how to do that. But that's not what we're talking about because we're wondering how can we best use one part of our mind to aid in another part. The word that you used, which I find interesting, was against, to use it against itself. Right. Where I would propose it as using it to work with. Okay. Using yeah. it to work with. Sure. Now, one thing that's super helpful in, in all of this is doing it with other people. Because when you have checks and balances in place, you are then able to have someone else who's grounded in reality. And this is where it's super important. Okay. This is where it's super important for people to vet and be very picky with who they get advice from that will in part alter the course of their life. Like when I hire coaches, I make sure that they have both displayed mastery in that area in their life that I want to excel in. And I also make sure that their moral compass is at best not incongruent with my moral compass. No, not at best. At worst, not incongruent with my moral compass. And at best, they are also fellow professing Christians. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, I'll get my, my clients will ask me, you know, what's the best way to hypnotize myself? Because you can engage in self-hypnosis. We do it all the time. That's how people reach conclusions that are both positive for themselves and destructive for themselves. Um, if you meditate on how, the, the like statistically speaking, you're most likely to get into a car crash around your house, you could reason to not drive your car around your house which would then lead you to not drive a car at all. Mm -hmm. And the only way that you're going to reach that conclusion is because we would say that's an irrational conclusion because it surpasses the conscious mind. It appeals to the emotion to want to protect yourself. So you've effectively self-manipulated yourself to not want to drive a car. And there are many other examples of how people do this all the time. Mm -hmm. And if we don't converse with other people about ultimately our perception of reality because if you think you're going to crash your car around your house and you don't drive your car that's your perception of reality then to talk about that with someone else they're able to help you either break out of the generalization clear the distortion or recover some kind of deleted information that would benefit you to move forward so like if someone were actually scared of driving their car and it this just happened the first thing that I would do is I would ask, how many times in the past have you driven your car and not crashed? <laughs> yes. I, I use something just similar. just broken a generalization. 
<clears throat> now that's asking a question that because it requires them to recall memories, it's going to go under their conscious mind and it's going to go to their subconscious mind. So when it comes to working with mentors, when it comes to working with coaches, you have to make sure first and foremost that they're vetted, that they're qualified, that they're good people. If you're a Christian, work with Christians. Interesting. And Mm. that they have exercised mastery in that area of their life. Because you can use these techniques on yourself but you're susceptible to falling into the same patterns that reinforce the behavior by engaging on in it with yourself. So by going to other people, we're able to have the back and forths, which are grounded in reality. And when they're with fellow Christians, they're grounded in objective God-created reality. These things then can become productive mm-hmm. as opposed to destructive. Because like you could, because me- like plenty of people, they want to meditate to reach enlightenment. They're going to reach their own preconceived notions of enlightenment through their meditation. Oh, I did this thing and I did it the right way. Well, you know, you've self-manipulated yourself into this thing where you could engage with other people who are then going to be able to appeal to emotion and use persuasion because persuasion is I win, you win. Manipulation is I win, you lose. And in the case of self-manipulation, it's losing under the lie of winning. Mm. where being persuaded is it's mute it's beneficial for yourself but in self persuasion for the christian it's not just i win it's christ winning in me right mm. so these things are most helpful when it happens in conversation with other people and that's why we have to test these things with others it's just the same reason why in the Bible, and I, like I said, I was doing all this reading yesterday, and I must have not been aware that there were so many warnings in these New Testament letters to vet and protect yourself against false teaching and false teachers. Yeah, That's one of the most prominent themes of the New Testament. So we both have to be aware of those things so that we can vet and protect ourselves from false teachers but also so that we don't accidentally become susceptible to the manipulation of false teachers. So we have to exercise godly wisdom in ensuring that we are working with people who don't just have our best interest in mind, but have submitted themselves to the will of God. So that way, I'll say God's best interest is at mind. Gentlemen, we're approaching the end of 2023 and the start of 2024. And I've got a couple important questions for you. First, as the year draws to a close, is this how you hoped your body, relationships, home, career, and faith would look? And second, with the answer to that question in mind, how do you feel heading into 2024 knowing it's an election year? Now, I'm not talking about politics. That is not where I place my hope, which is only in Christ. Instead, I'm talking about the alternative to him, which is a chaos that now seems all but inevitable. Don't believe me? Do you remember 2020? Four years ago, we didn't really have a warning. The curtain of COVID and the fiery shrines to St. Floyd came out of nowhere. Plenty of Christian men, including husbands and fathers, were caught unaware and flat-footed. Today, you have no such excuse, especially if you listen to this podcast. You've had four years to prepare, and so, where are you at, bro? Is your physical health where you want it to be? How about your emotional health, your intellectual health, or even your spiritual health? 
Have you formed a group of friends and a band of brothers? Are you taking dominion over your workplace, your household, and your legacy? Are you leading your home? Are you leading yourself? Or are you still trusting the plan, waiting for other men to lead you? Which is why I started my men's mentorship program. It is designed to help you discover where you are, where you're going, and how fast you're going there, and then turn the wheel. And now every mentorship package includes a free membership in my men's group, The Council, where you can become part of your own honor group of Christian brothers who hold you accountable. In these ways, I'm answering the challenges I saw way back in summer of 2020 when I started the Renaissance of Men. The need for men to become healthier in every way that matters. The need for us to take dominion over our lives and find our way back to brotherhood for the first time in decades. I was too late to make a difference in men's lives in 2020, so maybe today I can help make a difference in yours. Visit renofmen.com mentorship to learn more, watch full-length testimonials, and book a free explore call to find out how I can help. And use the code NEWYEARS for 15% off any plan. Gentlemen, 2024 is coming, whether you're ready or not, and I want to help you make a plan to get through it. The next four years are counting on you. I think I, th- I think you're right, and the and one of the reasons I think you're right about this is because you think about the phenomenon of of Christian deconstruction, right? Where you have uh, we'll give them the benefit of the doubt and say apparently faithful Christians get seduced, manipulated by information that they haven't previously been exposed to, and setting aside that, yes, they're probably just all succumbing to their desire to participate in sexual sin. That seems to be somewhat well-documented that that's really what underlies a lot of it is they want to, they want, they're being provided an excuse to give in the temptation. But setting that aside, that being able to explore and sanctify these topics from a Christian perspective is actually, actually becomes anti-manipulation. Like to be able to say, like rather than simply dismissing the the function of the subconscious mind as not that anyone's saying this, like oh, it's all just demonic. Like by slapping that label on it, do not enter. You know, that's all cautiousism. Exactly right. That's actually not. It's not true, but it's also it's also dangerous because what it means is that the first person to open that door to someone says, like, see, you know, it's like driving a car or whatever. And like, wow, why has nobody told me this before? This seems all right. And then they're led in by the wrong person instead of, inst- instead of, and I think this is probably, um, this, this might be the, the seductive power of guys like, I don't know, a lot of the Manosphere guys, pick them, where it's like you, you have all these lost and fatherless Christian men, right, who are made in the image of God and who, to take dominion. And no one in the Christian church, no male leader, especially not female leaders, has guided them towards taking dominion in terms of their physical fitness and personal finance. And so what happens? They stumble into the manosphere or they stumble into the red pill that tells that finally someone's telling me something that appears to be true in the ways that women work. Why did my pastor not tell me this? Why did my father not tell me this? So let me go follow this manosphere leader who is not of God down this path you know, and, and completely throw my faith away and go that way because finally someone is talking to me about the thing that my pastor and my father never would, right? This, and this is true. This is the seductive power of the red pill. 
It's like someone finally told them something true about women instead of like women don't sin or are perfect angels and then all that. And so in the same way, as you start dealing with very powerful people who are into persuasion and manipulation, who are telling them things about the subconscious minds, like, no, this is, this is all true. You can validate this for myself. Why did my father never tell me? Or why did my, why did my pastor never tell me? Or why was I never given books about this? What else are they keeping from me? And then they get manipulated by people who don't have their best interests at heart because it's because Christians over the past, as far as I can tell, 80 years have completely abdicated on issues of fitness and nutrition and money and sex and death. They've just, we don't want to deal with any of that because it gives me the feel bads and Christianity feel good, good time. And so they've opened up all of these fields for bad actors to take advantage of people's naivete and just slapping the label of like demonic over it. Like it may scare away the less intrepid travelers. Sure. But like when you have someone truly drawn by a proper manipulator or a proper salesman, same thing, you end up making the situation worse. So this is something that I see very often in the world of fitness, which is like, where are the Christian trainers Where are the Christian men writing books specifically about physical fitness? Why is everyone like, because men are going to go looking for that information. They should get it from Christianity and there's nothing inherently ungodly about a barbell, right? And yet Christians are like, oh no, that's just all vanity. That's all worldliness. And it just ends up- On their second bag of potato chips. Yes. Or, Or then they fall in or then they start following, I don't know, pick your favorite Manosphere influencer who hates, who openly hates and mocks God, right? And so I guess not talking about this stuff, not talking about the stuff in the right way is far more dangerous, um, can be far more dangerous. Like it needs to, we need to be able to speak about this stuff from a Christian perspective because we don't, other people will. And other people oh, yeah. will, will not do a good job with it. You know, they, they, will, they will manipulate with it. So I could probably, I could probably make that case. Mm-hmm. If yeah. you don't know how to drive your own mind, someone else will drive your mind for you. Yes. Yes. Yeah. We, we, it is wise for us to be aware of the intricacies of our own mind, both so we can protect ourselves from manipulation, but also so that we can check it with biblical truth and then Christian centered discussions and lifestyles. Because what, you've described you, you have these these guys who i mean what man does not want to experience the glory of his own strength what man does not want to experience the richness of male sexuality and intimacy in relationships what man does not want to make money and be able to enjoy a more lavish lifestyle because of money mm-hmm. And it's not that these desires are bad, but because the modern Christian church by and large has failed to address those topics, those who do become very appealing Mm -hmm. because they've appealed to their emotions. It's their emotional want for sex, money, and power, or fitness and strength. It's their emotional want for those things, which I know to be the subconscious mind. That's the part that that's where that domain is, the subconscious, emotions, by and large, subconscious mind. And then 
because we because men you know we have the split women are emotional men are logical and it's prosperous yeah and it's and it's ridiculous to propose that a man would make an emotional decision when in Never reality <laughs> yeah right when in reality all decisions are made in emotion and then are only afterward justified logically so first and foremost for for men to think and i'm not outright saying that men aren't logical I'm saying that men are just as emotional and are much more emotional than they think they are. Mm. And there's nothing wrong with that because when we are able to understand our emotionality, when we're able to understand the subconscious mind, when we're then able to submit those things to God, we are then able to rightly pursue those things. Now that, and that's, that's where you have, you know, these manosphere gurus that have all these, you know, emotional solutions, do this, get that, where it's so appealing is because so much of what makes men men, because it's because it has the potential for danger, because we're supposed to be dangerous, we're warriors, you know, being made in the image of God includes we're made in the image of the same God that brought Sodom and Gomorrah to the ground, decimated it, mm. if that potential resides within us. Because us men are dangerous, we have the potential for danger, it is easier to subdue that. Mm -hmm. It is easier to just, instead of address it, to just do our best to do away with it. So those who appeal mm -hmm. to the emotional desire, or just emotions, whatever, it's like, oh my goodness, finally, someone hears me. Finally, someone understands me. Finally, I'm seen. And, you know, it's it's kind of like the Bible has all the answers, but it's certainly not worded in the way that would answer all of our modern questions. So that's where mm -hmm. these discussions are so important for Christians to have to broaden the spectrum because it's, you know, you, you discuss this and you have the discussion and then throughout the discussion or after the fact you go, okay, what does the word of God say about that? What does the Bible verify to then not risk coming to a conclusion that is not of God. And that's an ongoing thing. Yeah. That itself is a process. Um, it's just like, you know, I think we've all had experiences where we've used something to our benefit and we've later realized, oh, that actually wasn't good for us to do it that way. And it served its purpose. It did its thing. Job well done. But we're now older and wiser and smarter and better off than that. And we no longer use that. Like for myself, you know, I, like I mentioned earlier, I abused marijuana. I was addicted to it for a period. But in its own sense, it did play a role in enabling me to lay the foundation for my business without being completely overwhelmed and distracted by emotion. Now there were major repercussions. Once I stopped using it, I had to face those emotions. And that's been an entire process in and of itself. But now I'm wiser and I know that I'm not going to go smoke to alleviate myself from pain or to categorize that so I can go do something else. I have better tools in place. Mm -hmm. Now, something that is so cool, so cool about Christianity, <laughs> like is amazing, 
is all things work together for God's good. He's going to use anything and everything for his good. So, you know, and I'm going to be, I want to be careful with what I say here, but with all things working together for God's good, he will not orchestrate things in such a way that the sinful path is the path, but just, well, he makes it right after the fact. Yes, he can, he will. That's, that is, that is redemption, but it's also it's not wise to say, well, I'm going to do the wrong thing anyway, just to see how God redeems. Right, right. <laughs> don't 100%. do that. Yeah, right. Which yes. then brings us, which brings back to the whole. Well, I don't want to accept these things because what if I want to sin? <clears throat> so, should you use something that served a purpose, which you now realize was, I'll say, not the right thing to do? God will, in due time, give you the better way and the best way to do that thing, which is in part with sanctification. I think that there, I've experienced in my life occasional circumstances. Maybe it happens once a year where I encounter a situation where I genuinely do not know the right thing to do. And I'm huge on um, when it comes to decision making. It's not so much the decision I make but the principle that I use to make the decision, right? So what am I, what foundation am I standing on? Like, and, and so it's possible to get into situations where there are two competing moral principles that are both equally righteous ways to make a decision. And I don't know which one is more right, right? I really don't, it's rare, like it's a rare situation. And, and um, but it does come up and I spend a lot of time thinking about it. I look at it all these different ways like, well, how do I, how do I handle this given that I have to balance two competing goods and it doesn't seem like there's a way that I can have some out of the box kind of solution. Like I can feel, cause sometimes that's the case. Like I'm just thinking about it wrongly and let me think about it in a new way. And I'll see the way that splits the difference in this miraculous way. I've been in situations where it's like, no, it's, it's literally gotta be one thing or the other, like turn left or turn right. It's not like, I'm just going to go straight, you know? And, and it's in those, it's in those moments where the trust that all things work together for the good for those that love God and are called according to his purpose, that is where those moments were like, okay, I'm going to make one of these decisions and there's going to be unintended consequences either way, but God will redeem it. And, and I have to make, I have to make a decision. I have to make the right decision for the be- the rightest reason I come up, can come up with, which is for the glory of God, which usually, usually helps lately. It's helped a lot, but there are just those, there are just those circumstances where it's like, gosh, I am at the limit of my own personal wisdom and in, and in prayer, like I get a blank, you know, or it's like, or just all the other tools that I've used in the past. There's not, there's not an answer that I just have, I just have to choose. I have to make a leap. I have to make a leap of faith. And, and those have been happening less and less frequently, but they do still occur. And it's in those moments where I find that redemption becomes the most helpful in my, in my, I want to say post-Christian life. Certainly, all certainly, so many circumstances of my pre-Christian life have been um, have been redeemed in absolutely startling, startling ways. So much so to the point where, um, to the point where uh, the first clue that I ever had to the character of God was that He had built redemption into the fabric of the universe. That there's no reason why, when we go through hard things, we should finish if we really commit to the process and see it the entire way through that we end up in a better place than when we began. 
And the, the, good, the amp example that I always use of that is people who have survived cancer. They say, I would never wish it on anybody, but it's one of the best things to ever happen to me. Like, why is that true? Mm. Right? Like they, they, they say that in many cases, and that's the power of redemption. That's the power of God to redeem even some of the most dire circumstances and make them serve the higher, higher good. And that same principle is at work when having to make difficult moral decisions against competing moral values, right? And, and to, to, as a real test, to know that, okay, there, there may be unintended consequences here, but even those will be redeemed as well. That's the level of comfort that I don't know, um, that I don't know I'd ever had before. Because I recognize that, again, if I commit to the process, even these loose ends will all be tied up in a new and glorious way. That's where I think it's probably it's righteous to think in terms of like, well, I can trust my decision because God's going to redeem it. Whereas saying like, let me just sin because God let, and let God sort it out. Just right. Not how you want. Right. Don't you want to do that? Yeah, and I think with what you said too, those things that work for God's good, where redemption is present, there's nothing human where it can be replicated or systematized. Right. It is just uniquely divinely interwoven where it is 100% orchestrated by God. Mm -hmm. And there's, there's no part of that where we can try to do it. Right. (laughs) Yeah. There's no, there's no, um, we, we recognize that there's no uh, impersonal law that we're drawing upon to accomplish this. It's solely God's good pleasure. And maybe we can get bailed out in our naivete. Certainly, I have been bailed out in my naivete many times. Um, and praise God for that. <laughs> but gambling on God to bail you out of your naivete is a losing, is a, is yeah. a losing strategy. Yeah, that's yeah, best to avoid that one. Yeah. The, the other thing that I wanted to add is one of the things that I think Christianity is not great with right now is notion of men and power in the sense of like Christian men are taught to be weak physically, like don't be in shape because that's vanity. Don't be ambitious, meaning don't, don't exert power over your environment because ambition is what also, also vanity, right? Or sinful or worldliness, right? Don't don't, um, or it's not ambitious. Ambition isn't pride, you know, being, having a, having money itself is not greed or or sinful avarice, you know, wanting a healthy sex life with your wife, right. Isn't, isn't lust. And, but all of these things, physical fitness, financial, financial security, sexual desire and ambition these are all manifestations of masculine power. Mm-hmm. And I get the sense that Christian men are not permitted to have any expressions of masculine power. In fact, and this shows up in the Christian nationalism debate, when you start talking about, hey, maybe we Christians should take over the government instead of allowing it to abort, you know, instead of, you know, all these babies, et cetera, you know, drag queen, whatever, whatever, unjust wars, mm-hmm. you know, ill, Ill- illegal taxation, COVID insanity, maybe we Christians should take over and then the entire internet, including some Christians freak out like, no, we can't do that. Right. And so I think somewhere in this discussion about like, well, what if our own, what if our own subconscious mind, the ways that you and I are talking about it, 
what if there's a lot of our personal power is wrapped up in there as well? How do we come in, in the same? So maybe the question then is, how do we come into righteous relationship with physical strength, embodied physical strength and fitness? How do we come into righteous relationship with financial strength? How do we come into righteous relationship with, we'll call it sexual strength broadly? How do we come into righteous relationship with, with ambition, right? Or which we might say like a form of life strength. How do we come into right relationship as Christians with the power inherent in our own minds? And maybe all of these pieces fit together in that way that, no, no, don't go looking in the thing that you could actually find some power to put into service for the kingdom. Don't go looking in there because we distrust power intuitively. I wonder if these things are related. So you ask, how do we do it? And perhaps the overarching theme of our discussion is it's not us who does it. Oh, there you go. So this topic of power cuz cuz let's let's be real let's be like let's be super real here there are certain men who under no circumstances should have power including all the men that currently certain, do have power yeah and there are certain men who under no circumstances are able to yield power or yield power to, to or hold power yeah wield yeah, power yeah wield power wield power there there are certain men who are under no circumstances able to wield it so when you have Christian men who are going through the process of sanctification, which you could propose is preparing them for power, more money, better sex, physically fit, mastery of the mind within the confinements that God has laid out for us. I think what is it that we do outside of surrendering to the will of God? Because what makes power good for the Christian man is how will God rightly use that power in his life? In the man's how life. Can, yes. Mm-hmm. How can a physically able body bring glory to God? How can a healthy sexual relationship bring glory to God? How can financial abundance bring glory to God? Mm-hmm. Now, I guess I'll, or that's kind of, I think that's kind of the, the, the culmination of it is it's, it's in surrendering that the pursuit of what we'll call power can be made right and is right because it's God using it and it's of God. A lot of those things are of God. There's nothing wrong with wanting sex, nothing wrong with wanting prosperity. There's nothing wrong with wanting to be physically fit. There's nothing wrong with any of those things. And that's one thing that the modern church really has to come to terms with. Yeah. And what required what's required to do that is to let go of shame. Shame has to be absolved, mm-hmm. both by working with their subconscious mind, because a lot of shame is just held on to bad memories, for what most shame is, held on to bad memories, bad experiences, but also by inviting the Holy Spirit into those to work through and to complete that work. The Holy Spirit will get rid of your shame. Ask him. Mm. He wants to do it. Now, I mean, you may have some confession to do. You may have some repentance to do, but yeah, it's not, it's not necessarily oh, yeah. bad. Yeah, for sure. Oh, yeah. Yeah, there's, there's the spirit-led process that will have to happen for that to happen to get rid of shame so that way you can rightly pursue power. And I think, you know, we don't have the exact step-by-step process laid out for us in the Bible, but even that is this appeal to the conscious mind for wanting to know what can I do to feel the way that I want to feel when in submitting and surrendering to God enables our life to happen in such a way 
that the appeal to power is met with righteousness and holiness. And it's not just, you know, how do I do it? How do I, how do I do this in a way to avoid the potential pitfalls of it? We don't have to worry about the potential pitfalls or the bad side of it because it's, it's secured and it's sanctified in surrendering and submitting our will to the will of God. Mm-hmm. How do you do that? I think if you can't do it, let God know and let him know you want to mm. and something will happen. Something will happen. I like the sound of that. Okay. <laughs> well, no, really, because the question, yeah. the, I've been saying this a lot lately. I, I end up saying it to all my clients because it seems to be, it seems to be the question that's up for so many Christian men. The question that they ask, and I see that I see this being asked all over Instagram I see it being asked all over Twitter and all these different ways. And to me, the question comes down to, if I pull the sword from the stone, will I become a tyrant? That seems to be the question that Christian men are asking. They worry that if they claim some measure of personal power, will they use it for tyranny? My response to them is always um, that you're even worried about it is the surest sign that you won't be a tyrant. Because it, yeah, it demonstrates that your conscience is active, that you're concerned like I might be, I'll keep myself weak on the off chance that I might become a tyrant. That's this really strong conscience. So, but that to that degree, that fear has to be overcome, that shame has to be overcome, and that self-doubt has to be overcome. How can that self-doubt be overcome, given that we can't ever truly ever fully trust ourselves, which I I think there is a healthy amount of self-doubt that Christians are called to feel. And I think that that's okay. But the answer to that gap in the healthy amount of self-doubt that often gets used against Christians, the answer to that is, is God. Is that allow God to work through you and, and trust and surrender. And, and by acquiring power, I also tell men, the highest use of personal power is in self-sacrifice. And that's the message of the Christian faith, that Christ mm. was, you know, a, a objectively, the most powerful man to ever exist. You know, he could command 12 legions of angels. And that's, that's all that I, you know, that's all that I need to know. But what did he do? What did he do with his power? He did many things with it. But one of the things that he did, he did with his power is he gave himself up in sacrifice. And we see that mirrored throughout so many different versions of our great stories. That's why Braveheart is so powerful because he like, because William Wallace achieves all this power and sacrifices himself right? He doesn't drive his power home to conquer England personally, which he could have done. He gives himself up in sacrifice. And his sacrifice, the sacrifice of his power is what drives the story forward to completion and, lib- and liberation. So, we see this. So, men, so maybe the, the answer is men acquire all this personal power and then recognize that the ultimate highest use of it will ultimately come in the form of sacrifice. And that, and that is only possible for the Christian man. Because the, 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 the Nietzschean man does not believe in sacrificing himself, right? It's just the, ult, the fullest ultimate yeah. expression of power to my own immortality. But the Christian man can actually use, is the only man, there we go. He's the only man that can use that power rightfully because it's not if I pull the sword from the stone, will I become the tyrant? It's if I pull the sword from the stone and learn to use it, how will I know when to lay it down? Do I have the strength to lay it down? That's the, that's the, real, that's the real question. Mm. Hmm. And a good question it is. What you, what you brought up about 
you know, if I pull the stone or if I pull the sword from a stone, will I become a tyrant? It would be it would be good for men to have those conversations with fellow Christians, mm. especially with people like your, yourself and myself, so that way we can help them rightly through their own fears and worries. Because if because if because because if your conscience, your moral compass has concluded, it is best for me to not pull the sword because I'm afraid of the tyrant I will become. Yep. Then some sort of self-manipulation has happened. Ooh. Something has happened there. Could be a memory, could be a traumatic experience, generalization. Someone else could have beat them over the head with it. And, and, and these, all these things could be well-intentioned too. Something has happened that has led them to the conclusion that they will become a tyrant. So it is best for them to not even pull the sword. What I would do is I would, I would engage with the literal metaphor that has taken place. And I would, in a session with someone, I would ask them to find themselves in front of the sword in the stone and to pull it. And then I would ask them to let me know what happens next. Mm -hmm. And then I would continue to work through that with them. They might go, oh, well, I can't pull the stone out of, or the sword out of the stone. I can't pull it out. I would ask, why not? And they might tell me why. They may not know why. I'd ask them another question. Mm -hmm. If they said that they could, and then, oh no, I'm starting to become the tyrant. I would ask them to get, you know, very specific. Well, what kind of tyrant? Tell me about that. How do you know you're becoming a tyrant? Because the metaphor is the, is the literal representation of the subconscious mind's understanding of those events unfolding. So it's not just a poetic sword in the stone. Mm -hmm. That is the literal expression. That is, that is the thing. That is the truest thing that that could be. And in interacting with that, you will get far more out of it for your client, your friend, your, your brother in Christ than you would by trying to go all logic-minded on them. And try to appeal to logic and analysis and all these other things. Because it's because if it's, I'm scared of the tyrant that I would become if I pull the sword out of the stone, then that tells you, well, that is what you need to work with. That is what I would work with. That's what the subconscious, that's that subconscious domain. And if by interacting with that, you can then help someone to reach a point where they are able to surrender and submit themselves to the will of God, should they encounter and embody that power, I think you've done a good thing. Mm. I think you've done a very good thing. I present this metaphor. No, that's I, I actually hadn't applied it like specifically in terms of specific situations in, in men's lives. Well, however, however, reading your book, I definitely see like like the the ways that our, our approaches are complementary. I mean it more in like a and it's 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 valid either way, which is why I like what you just said because it, it's very much like the the what that is articulating is this feeling of um, inefficacy that men have in their lives, meaning they're not able to generate the results that they that they would like in in whatever scenarios of their life are meaningful meaningful to them. It might be their marriage, it might be their career, it might be their friendships. It just depends on the stage of life that they're in. And the reason why they're unable to do that is that they're able they're unable to assert a what what I'll call broadly a powerful feeling of dominance 
in terms of their their presence over the environment meaning they're not they're not able to be men and in in terms of that because there's there's some part of themselves that they haven't tapped into is what the mm-hmm. is what the metaphor is what the metaphor for lack of a better word literally means is that there's some part of yourself that's yours it's in you you were you were made in god's image you were born with it you have you have been trained or shamed maybe there isn't so much difference between the two um or afraid of using it but it's yours and you need it to get where you're where you want to go mm-hmm. and um and so that's that's the maybe that's my own form of hypnosis is uh is <laughs> <laughs> well we you know we we talked we talked about this in in texas about how about how like we use we do a lot of the same things you know with mm-hmm. for for different reasons uh, in our own way but like it is a form of hypnosis, a way of like, here's a way to think about uh, hypnosis in terms of the way that you frame it. Um, not hypnosis in terms of like, I'm going to open up your mind and put something in that doesn't belong there. You know what I mean? Like in, in terms of like working with some part of your mind that's, that's, that's deeper than just your conscious rational awareness. So here's how to think about the, here's how to think about the way your life is currently set up and the way that you are approaching your life and aspects of yourself. Is there more to you that you can bring to bear in these scenarios? And how do we bring, how do we bring that out? How do we guide men to a place where they feel like they can trust themselves? Because all of society tells them, we don't trust you. You can't trust yourself. Men are patriarchal, oppressor, awful human beings. And it's like, well, that's not me, but like, it might be, <laughs> right? Mm, how do we, yeah. how do we take, how do we get rid of, how do we get rid of that and allow the sword in the most broad metaphorical sense to be applied to the situations of life that are meaningful. How do I be the guy? Yeah. Yeah. I think what we can do as, as helpers to our fellow man is meet them where they're at. And then as time goes on, share our stories with them and have honest discussion where they are invited to share whatever they want to share and then do our best to help them navigate through that. Mm-hmm. Because if it's the if it's the thing, if because I mean, there's so many there's so many things that men struggle with, and so much of it is outside conditioning and programming, and our own internal conclusions brought on from those things. Yep. That a simple conversation with someone else can undo and can help you live a. A, a better life in so many different ways mm-hmm. in so many different ways now there are i there are specific techniques that i employ to bring about what i would call more rapid results than your average like you could you could just simply converse and reach results in one time or one in a certain timetable or you can work with someone like myself and reach those results faster because if you could just go to the subconscious go to the subconscious, Mm -hmm. which is what my book proposes. Mm -hmm. And it proposes it specifically for overcoming screen addictions and for men who would like to continue to and finally break free from a porn addiction. My book is a wonderful starting place. And for some, for most, I wrote it to do this. It could be all you need. Read the book, apply it, go through it. But it, it shows that there's a way to utilize what I call the power of the subconscious mind to get results, to take the sword 
out of the stone or to at least start that process. Because as Christians, we know that we don't finish it. God does. And of course, we also know that (laughs) we don't start it either. Mm. He does. But if that's him (laughs) telling you to get my book, you know, then I'm all for it. Because the Lord works in such a way that it happens automatically, instantaneously, and effortlessly. And he also works it out in such a way that he's going to bring us two things and two people and two processes and two experiences that happen as they happen. Because that's where that's where I think some of the rubber meets the road here. Because we can talk all we want and it's, and it's real and it's valid and it is what it is in its simplest form, right? It's the work of the Holy Spirit. It just happens. But when the rubber meets the road in our real world, in our human experience, what that looks like is us continuing through our day-to-day life in prayer and in Bible reading and in fellowship with other Christians and engaging in the active process of sanctification. And it's not that we do those things, because that's where this is where the conscious mind and the subconscious mind are like at odds here. Because the conscious mind wants to do, the subconscious can just accept. But if there's these things that have made it difficult to accept, it can't accept because you're too conscious minded. Anyways, practically speaking, this looks like if you are a man and you believe and you feel and, and it's accompanied by peace. Peace is a hallmark qualifier here that you should hire a coach or get a course or ask that girl out or go to the gym or start a side hustle, do it. Mm-hmm. That's practically what that looks like. And maybe you'll find out after the fact, maybe you'll find out through it, or maybe it'll be worked together for the glory of God. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, I, I love all of that because it would be important for, I, I think it'll be really important for any man interested. I, I, I know it would be important, and this is what I would recommend, is for, for any man interested in talking about things related to consciousness broadly, you know, um, whether it be your um, your conscious awareness thinking, right? Co- might call it cognitive behavioral therapy. You know, is is it works with our logical decision making kind of processes? Like, how are we thinking through the things, you know, that we deal with, right? Or working with aspects of the subconscious is like, okay, you're now talking about the, we're talking about the psyche, which means soul right? That word psyche literally means soul. And when we're talking about matters of the soul, you have to be very careful. You have to be very careful that the person that you're talking through it with is, is properly calibrated, is properly oriented, is serving, is serving the right master. And so, it, so if that's the case, then, and, and we know that some of the, for example, like porn addiction, right? Like, okay, I don't doubt that porn addiction can be addressed substantially with prayer, massive amount of prayer and scripture reading. Like mm-hmm. I, I don't, I don't doubt that. I don't. I think that can probably address anything. And yet, it does not appear to work in all cases. I don't know why. This is not something that I personally struggle with, but I don't know why. So if that's the case, mm-hmm. so if there are are subconscious, let's say, psychological techniques that can work that are not ungodly, right? That, um, that involve not implanting false ideas into the mind, but questioning false ideas that are already in the mind, 
right? Because mm-hmm. there's a big difference in like, I'm going to hip, like the, when people hear the word hypnosis, as you and I have talked about, the meaning that at least I assign to that, that I think a lot of people assign to that word is you put someone to a suggest, suggestive state and then you implant something from your mind into theirs, right? Mm-hmm. You're putting in something that doesn't, um, that doesn't belong. That is very different from the way that I hear you meaning it, which is to say, we're going to look inside your mind and see what's already in there. I don't, and if it's already in there, I, I don't, I don't see a whole lot of danger with pointing out that it's there, right? Like I'm not going to, I'm not going to insert something physically in your body. I'm going to point out the shrapnel that you've already got in there, right? And that's a healing thing. And, and as my mentor, Glenn, who was on my podcast in September says, one of the most powerful things that he ever said to me was that it's not about, um, we were talking about men's inner work related to trauma specifically. It's not necessarily about giving someone the truth. It's about pointing out the lie. And when you pull out the lie, mm. the body naturally attains to, to health, right? When you, when like you're actually letting the body's innate healing ability, like when you put, put a cast on a broken limb, the body heals itself. You're just making sure the healing can apply, right? So it's a similar, it's a similar kind of concept. So for what we're talking about then, if, if we know that prayer and scripture reading isn't addressing the problem and that we can couple that with psychological techniques of pointing out the lie that's in there about a false belief, are we allowed to do that? If it gets a guy off porn and it's not ungodly, these are questions that I, I don't, I don't, that, that the only answer that I can come up with is, is to say the person who's doing the facilitation they have to be so properly calibrated before you can even say that, yes. Because you can't just like go throw them at some secular guy who can fix the problem. But a Christian man, yeah. a believer, he's properly calibrated. He's on his own sanctification process. He's learning to improve the use of his tools. I think in that, in that environment, that's probably as godly as we can get given our current understanding of where things are at right in in society with our ability to address modern challenges. Right? Yeah. Right. And this is, that, that's meant to be, that's meant to be a long form endorsement of you. <laughs> <laughs> well, I appreciate it. Yeah. But I mean, and, and, and I mean, and I mean that because, because I think everyone listening, certainly I do has a sense of how delicate what we're talking about is. Mm-hmm. And there, these are matters of like the psyche, which are matters of the soul, which is matters of eternal life one way or another. And so the stakes are high. And also we're dealing with an environment in, in the modern world where the stakes are also high in terms of righteous living and our ability to establish uh, uh, God's kingdom here on earth, especially in a post-millennial take dominion kind of way. So the stakes are high all around, which means the stakes are high for victory. And so how can we explore how can we explore things righteously that can help enable victory in a godly sen- sense? Mm-hmm. Where's the, where is the man who is doing them coming from? And that is, that is a, that is a big, that is not the only question, but that is a big question. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no. And I, and I, I mean, I, I, I very much so appreciate your endorsement. It's, it's very, <laughs> you yourself are held in very high regard in my eyes and in my life. And I'm very thankful for our relationship and our continued friendship. So for you to be able to, recommend your people and your audience to me is is something that I'm very, very thankful and grateful for. And with this, I mean, kind of the way that I, I go about it is continuing to vet what I learn about my skill set with what God says 
in the Bible and making sure, like I said earlier, right, the men that we work with, the men that we work with as men who want to self-improve, who want to increase our quality of life, who want to do right, who want to be better, it is very important that we do not just half-assedly hire someone who has the shiniest solution. Please don't. Yes, please don't. It is important for us to, you know, vet, listen to, ask questions. Like I hired someone to help with some business coaching. And one of the things that I asked him on our call was, I said, the last few times that I've done this, I've hired people whose advice boils down to just tweet more because their businesses are only on Twitter. So I asked him, I said, what is your real world credibility that gives you the authority to coach on what you're coaching on? And I told him, I said, I'm asking you this because I should have asked the other coaches. And he goes, that's a great question. And he goes on to tell me, he's like, you know, I was involved in businesses and I helped businesses in Silicon Valley do this over the last 20 years and gave me some other examples. And I was like, oh, cool. This guy is not just someone who came to Twitter and did the thing and only can do that one thing. This is someone who knows what he's talking about. So far, it's been a much more enjoyable, much more beneficial experience Mm. in the coaching. Now, bonus points, he's a Christian. Mm -hmm. He's a Christian. So, Then I'll also say to work with people who get the results you want in the areas of life that you want, vet them, qualify them, and understand that there are other areas of their life that you don't have to take their advice on. Mm -hmm. Like there are certain people that I'll ask for money advice from that I will not ask for relationship advice from. There are certain people that I'll ask relationship advice from that I won't ask for business advice from because the area of their life that they've demonstrated their mastery in, that's the area that I'm most interested in. And when it comes to specifically asking them for advice, I'm not going to ask it in other areas. I have other people for that. I'll conversate and have conversation with them about those things. But there are certain things like I'm just, I'm very, I'm very careful with who I ask for advice from especially who I'm hiring, who I'm spending thousands of dollars on to give me advice that will verifiably alter the trajectory of my life as it currently stands based on their advice. Because anybody that I pay thousands of dollars to, I'm going to be predisposed to take their advice seriously. Sure. I mean, you just got to be smart, guys. We got to be smart with who we're we're hiring as coaches, mentors. Mm -hmm. Even if you're not hiring them, even if you're not hiring them, we still have to be smart. Because we're all being hypnotized one way or another. Woo. <laughs> right. Right. And, and ultimately, a lot of the stuff that, we, that we're talking about is, I think, oh, uh, it owes to the failure. And I'm not the only person saying this. In fact, Jeff Durbin from Apologia did a, a YouTube short yesterday about it. That the reason why America is in the state that it's in is because of the failure of pastors, multi-generational failure of pastors. Like, why are there guys teaching, teach, teaching Christian men how to be men? Because pastors and fathers failed at it, right? Why, is, why, did, why did porn get a foothold in the first place? Why, why are there not seminars being led from the churches about screens 
Why is there not? Why why is the is the to- total response of the church to become more worldly and to push back on the people that are challenging true worldliness? Ultimately, it's 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 because pastors and fathers have failed in their duties, and so now you have you have men uh, and women for women as well that are having to pick up this broken the, this this broken helm, this broken sword, and be like, all right, well, they left this sword on the ground for the past sixty or eighty years, but the battle needs to be fight here. We let's go, you know, mm-hmm. and and there are advantages of that, and there are disadvantages of that, and ultimately. You have to make sure for anybody for anybody listening that the person that you're working with in any regard to help you make improvements of your life, if that person is not your father or maybe even is, if, if that person is your pa- is not your pastor, although maybe if it is, you have to make sure that person gets you pointed in the right direction for the right reason. Right? Is like, is this all for the glory of God? Is it recognizing God's sovereignty? Is it recognizing sovereign grace? Is it recognizing? You know the idea that all of these things are gifts, because those are the those are the sorts of things that the secular world rebels against. No, it's all me. It's all in my own strength. Mm. You know what I mean? It's all it's all my own. I will deliver myself. It's like uh-uh. <laughs> if you find people who who can profess that authentically, you know the ear tests words as the tongue test t- tests food. I think is Job Job thirty four three. I think is that one. <laughs> one of the ones that I might actually know, but um, as a palate test food, if you hear that, then it's like, okay, you're in good hands. And I think we need more, we need more men that can, that can hold both of those things and say, like, I can recognize God's sovereignty and that God has also provided tools to create leverage with our lives to make improvements in a, in a moment where we need it. I think these things matter. And while also committing to the constant process of improvement and refinement within ourselves as, as practitioners, I think that's the journey. Yeah. 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 Us men, as those who have been appointed to help other men, it is very important that we do not stop in practicing what we preach Yeah, and in becoming more well-rounded. Like if there's something that I can learn that is, going to bring glory to God that will then help me help others. It at it is at minimum a good use of my time to qualify or disqualify it. Mm-hmm. Now it certainly doesn't mean I'm going to learn and use everything. But yeah, us as us as men helpers, leaders, we have to we gotta we gotta be on the up and up. You know, I mean that's I mean it's a very real, you know, cause cause we can talk and 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 have these conversations and the reminder must be present that while we are while the war has been won and death has been defeated there still is a spiritual war taking place mm-hmm. and it is our duty to it is our duty to it is our duty to see and experience the holy spirit working through us to fight on our behalf because while we might be the vessels that this war is fought through we can rest assured knowing the war is won that that's another thing to uh, that I this year especially this year was this like the significance that it is finished and that death has been defeated and this war is one that Christ has won mm-hmm. is like 
the most amazing thing. And and not enough. I don't I don't I do not think that enough Christians have come to experience the full impact of that. Like I had I had one of my two of my church friends, one of the guys was like, you know, I want to fight for God. And the other guy was like, why? <laughs> and he's like, well, because it's the right thing to do. And he goes, the war has been won. You don't have to fight for God. And I was like, and I'm, I'm just hearing this from the third person. And I'm like, I have never thought of it that way before. Not to, not that anyone misinterpret that and go, oh, I don't have to do anything. Right. <laughs> it's funny because we don't have to do anything, but then that defeats the whole point. Something will happen. It just isn't us doing it. So while we don't have to fight for God because he's already won, we will fight for God. Yeah, God doesn't God doesn't need us, right? It's not like, hey, <laughs> right. I need I need that guy on my team. You know what I mean? Like God's good. It's a, the blessing is for us to be able to fight to be enlisted into the to be enlisted into the battle and to get to participate in something whose long-term outcome is already decided but there's still the whole story to tell like when you read the book the end of the book is right there i mean any book any fiction book it's right there in the last few pages it's already been written but the but the joy is in the reading of it and what gets revealed through the experience of it, the glory that gets revealed from the author and the doing of it and to get to be characters in the story and and to be, to see it, to see it taking place all around us and to be able to watch it because we otherwise would be blind to it. That's the, that's the best, that's the best part is to get to see the process taking place all around us and within us and in our relationships and in our homes and in our businesses and all that stuff to get to watch all that take place is, is, um, and to participate in it and to know that it's, uh, we're living out something that's already been written. Uh, it's a profound, it's a profound gift. Yeah. It's amazing. Well, we've been rocking for four hours, crushing it <laughs> as we do. Do you, do you want to, do you want to spend a couple minutes just talking about, uh, talking about your book before we, before we wrap it up? Do you feel like yeah, you've, you've covered that. all that? Okay. Go for it. Let's do that. <clears throat> My book, you can find it on Amazon by searching, I can't believe how easy this is. And by reading the book, you will soon find out why I titled it that. But, and I titled it that because that's what my clients would tell me while working with me. <laughs> the subtitle is How to Conquer Screen Addictions with the Power of the Subconscious Mind. My camera's mirrored, but you get the idea. Mm. And the whole idea, How to Conquer Screen Addictions with the Power of the Subconscious Mind, is utilizing a part of you that is there to help you experience freedom from screen addictions. Now, in my professional practice, in my coaching practice, I specialize in helping men quit porn. That all being said, for those who scroll too much or watch too much YouTube or Netflix, or for those who know their screen time has become problematic and it is preventing them from being present and grounded and living the life they know they should and could be living, and it's causing them shame and other other issues, this book is my exact step-by-step process. It's the same thing that I take my clients through when I work with them one-on-one, and the entire book, I think mean, it details it from start to finish. And what's cool about this book and how I wrote it is, yes, there are things the book prescribes like exercises, things that you can do 
there's also a lot of heavy lifting that happens simply by reading the book. Because in writing the book, I appeal to my reader's subconscious mind. I utilize things like telling the stories that I have witnessed with my clients. And just, you know, the technical note, all the client stories in the book, the important details and the names and whatnot have been changed to protect client confidentiality because I'm not going to disclose these personal matters to the public because that's not how we roll. Mm. But I'm telling stories of client successes and things that I've helped my clients through. So simply just reading the book, you'll get an awful lot in there. And one of the things that I wrote in the book specifically to help just by reading is the very beginning of chapter seven, which talks about overcoming the fear of rejection. Because I know there are lots of men that are absolutely paralyzed by the fear of rejection. And if there's anything that can help them overcome that, I wanted to include it. So I included how to overcome the fear of rejection. And what's cool about that section is there's nothing you do to overcome it. Just read it and see what happens and notice what happens next. So You've got lots of cool exercises like chapter six has uh, what I call time trialing exercise, which because, you know, we talked about the uh, children being subconscious, like fully subconscious until the age of six to eight. What this then means is the subconscious is what some call the inner child. And I like to take the inner child idea a step further. And I propose that you have all of your former eras still inside of you. And what that means is, so myself, what I talk about in chapter six was 15 to 17 year old me struggling with a bunch of low self-esteem, low confidence, anxiety, and other issues of acceptance. Mm -hmm. I mean, it was bad. And it wasn't until earlier in this year, actually, while I was in it was, it was, it might have been the day before we got dinner, or it might have been the afternoon leading up to when we got dinner that I once more did this exercise for myself, practice what you preach, mm. that I wrote to my former self, as the exercise prescribes, that I noticed and felt that younger me, because your younger selves exist within you and they have needs, because if they weren't met in the past, Younger you is still trying to get those needs met in the present moment. And the only, well, I say the only thing that can meet those needs is yourself. Put that in context with the rest of the conversation. Yeah, of course. But, you know, for all intents and purposes, that's how the book lays it out. You know, you meet those needs and then younger you can be at peace. And there's no longer clawing and screaming and, you know, desperately attempting to get those needs met. So extra, there's an exercise in chapter six, super helpful. There's there's lots of things that I put in the book because the, the premise is you don't scroll because you're bored or you don't watch porn because you're horny. You scroll because you're hurting. You watch porn because you're hurting. There's some other emotional reason that you're trying to run from, escape from, or numb yourself to that you're searching for on screens and in porn. There's a line I had in the book where I say, who would have thought that we would use the world's largest search engines to search for emotional fulfillment? A mm. uh, little, little tongue in cheek there. So the book proposes and offers tools and solutions to help the individual figure out what 
are they searching for? How can they find it? And how can they experience it in such a way that the screen addiction can go away? Because it effectively, it serves a purpose. It's doing something. The book shows you how to do it better. So the screen addiction isn't necessary. So, and it's my, like I said, it's my coaching process. So you read the book, you get all the goods, um, but you can also work with me to take the book and apply it to you and your life and your specific situation. For anyone who's familiar with the benefits of working with a coach, those are all self-explanatory. Um, but then you also, you know, lots of parallels here. We talked about on the call, like you can do all these things yourself, but then you run the risk of self-manipulation and other things. So to be sure, recruit others along your journey. If you choose to do that with me, the book tells you how to do that. And if you, I mean, I mean, just, I think you should just read the book. I, I wrote the book <laughs> to do my job for me. <laughs> so for those who want to conquer their screen addictions for good, I give the step-by-step process that I have used with 120 plus clients over the last three years to do just that. Are you open? So if people read it and they have questions related to, uh, they want to have like a theological discussion, are you open to some of those as well, as long as they make mindful use of your time? Oh yeah. Yeah. You got questions about the book. I love, look, I I spent five months (laughs) writing the book. It's one of my favorite things to talk about. Awesome. You got questions because- I, I, I don't, I didn't write the book specifically Christian. Mm-hmm. However, I myself being a Christian, the, the Christian reader will pick up on themes and parallels. But for those who are curious and for themselves want to be sure of how I reach those conclusions, that is a conversation that I'm more than happy to have. Right. More than happy to have. That, I mean, that's, that's the most important thing. And I think, I think that's always the mark of, of, a, of uh, a, a real man or a real man or person with ideas is like, okay, are you willing to be accountable for your ideas, right? Like, are you, are you, are you willing to be, I, I hold myself to this standard. I'm currently engaged in a process right now with people who are not enjoying that standard. Like, are you willing to be accountable for their ideas? They're not enjoying it. It's like, well, sorry, you know? So in that way, like, are you willing, yeah, you're willing to be accountable. Fantastic. That's, and that's, 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 such an important that's such an important thing for all men and women who engage in this work is like I'm accountable for my ideas 100% right and that's and that's where that's where not only where we get better but that's also where we get stronger and um and that's also um that's also proof that like hey I'm not going to run right so that's I I, pre- I not that I thought any different of, of you um but of course it it, it it I'm grateful to get to share that side of you with people yeah yeah man I appreciate it. Perfect. Well, you want to send where where would you like to send people to find out more about you and what you do? Okay. So let's for sure go to www.johnhaskinsauthor.com. That will take you to my website. You can also find me on Twitter currently as at hypnostrategist, and that's H. Y P N O strategist. I will soon reclaim my presence on Instagram and TikTok, as I know, and on YouTube. I know the importance of creating more video content is 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 like super duper 
I'm getting on that. Plans are in the making. Got the mullet for um, it. Yeah, man. I got the look for it. <laughs> and then also, depending on... No, yeah. www.johnhassensauthor.com. If anything, that will be a fully functioning website with more than just the single, you know, talking about my coaching services. So that will give you a comprehensive way to get a hold of me. You should also... You can, I mean, you can find my book directly on Amazon if you look up. I can't believe how easy this is. If I'm not the top one that comes back, you'll find it as the second. If there's a sponsored spot, it'll probably show up at the top. You can also get the ebook version of the book anywhere else that you get books. There will be an audiobook available sooner rather than later on Audible and whatnot. I've got soft cover versions of the book. There's hardcover versions of the book. I'll also have signed copies available soon. So if you want, if you want a signed copy, just send me a DM on Twitter and just say the word signed and I'll get that out to you. Um, and I suppose if at any point in time you want a signed copy, message me that. But there'll be a limited run sooner or within very, very soon here. So yeah, go to go to www.johnhassensauthor.com and you'll get more info about my services, the different products that I'll have available. And for social media, you can find me at, at hypnostrategist. I don't think I'll change it, but I have been known to change it in the past. So who knows? <laughs> yes. Yeah. Well, last time we talked to you, were, you were King David. So now you're John. Yeah. <laughs> right? Thank yeah. Yeah. First name's John, middle name's David. <laughs> well, man, it's been great catching up with you. Thanks. I got, I appreciate you so much. What a, what an, another incredible conversation we have. Yeah, I have this, this was, I can't wait to, to hear what readers have to think and get this out to family and friends. Cause man, it's a good one. Praise God, man. Well, thank you so much. Yeah. Yeah. Amen. Thank you, Will. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Renaissance of Men podcast. Visit us on the web at renofmen.com or on your favorite social media platform at Ren of Men. This is the Renaissance of Men. You are the Renaissance. Renaissance.